Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Eric Weinstein, and you found The Portal. Today, I am joined by none other than my friend, Brian Callen. Brian, welcome. It's good to be in The Portal, my friend. Yeah, I'm you- not worthy, first of all. Let me say that I'm, let me apologize to your guests. I'm not worthy. I'm nothing but a lowly comic. Athletic, yes, but that's about all. Supple, dangerous at times, giving always. Well, I think this is the first time we've started with that level of insincere groveling, but thank you, Brian, for uh, breaking new territory. Uh, it's good. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. And I, I yours, sir. Stop. Okay. Now, here's the thing. First of all, uh, I want to say that I so love your conversational style that at any time that you want to start hosting this, feel free. <laughs> but uh, we're just we're just beginning the portal, and what we're trying to do with with the show and the series is two separate things. Mm. One, I think we're going to have a great time uh, being here and interviewing lots of uh, interesting people. But there's a sort of a a theme running through it, which is that I think a lot of people have realized that we've been in some kind of a stasis and that some of us may have found ways to break out of whatever this kind of malaise or miasma that settled over the country is. And we're trying to find the people uh, and the concepts that might give people some, some new options to think about how to break free of whatever might be holding them in place or their communities or the country even, so at all different levels and scales. One of the things that has been most impressive to me about you is the way you use um, certain techniques for breaking new ground uh, socially. And I was just thinking recently, I happened to um, be invited over to your place and you had a group of very talented combat uh, sports guys. Just an eclectic group. Right? It was an eclectic group, but, it was, but there was a common theme. And the yeah. common theme seemed to be uh, people who are very skilled in, in a ring or in, in combat-like situations. And it, it struck me that it was also incredibly diverse, that in mm-hmm. terms of a diversity standard, uh, other than, than the gendered issue, it was people of different hues, different religions, different cultural backgrounds, different age groups. And it was one of the greatest salons and dinners I've been to in a long time. And it consisted largely of, as the British say, people taking the piss out of each other. Yeah. Yeah. And as a result, the intimacy in the room was off the charts. People were really opening up. People were being vulnerable. People were actually building each other up. And somehow there is no explanation for this behavior in the current cultural moment. It's like we've forgotten what this is. Can you say a little bit about what you think is going on? Well, first of all, I think that it's unfortunately... Most people don't think they can make a difference with their ideas, with their conversation, with their point of view, uh, with their actions. The, the, you know, that, that's, that's a cynicism. It's a deep cynicism that seems to, and I've always been an optimist, and I've always thought, if you look at history, it's usually a gr- small group of people with, um, with, a, with a passionate set of ideas that get things moving. I mean, sometimes it's not for the good, in my opinion, for example, Russia in 1914. I mean, you had a very small group of intellectuals 
who got the communist revolution started. I might have been part of that back then if you looked at the way, you know, Russia was. But these are people that had the gumption. And the, I mean, if you look at the abolitionist movement, it was really started in, in England, in, I think in the 1840s. It started, but it was about these sort of like evangelical Christians who said, look, you know, no matter what, we can do this. If you look even in this country, John Brown, these were fanatics, but they were a small, energized group of people, the Quakers, they set these examples. You can even go into, um, you know, if, if you look, think about the ramifications of the marriage between, uh, I think it was Ibn Saud and uh, uh, Wahhab. Uh, and Wahhab. The, the, the marriage of those kids, and he, they, they made a deal, and he said, let me preach, let me preach my puritanical uh, Salafi Islam, my, my puritanical version of, of Wahhabi Islam. This is back in the 1700s? This was in, so, well, they, they met, I think, in 1744, but, okay. you know, it, it, they, they subsequently, so this was a small group of very energetic people. Now, I don't think a lot of times the outcome is so positive in those, in those instances, but I, for better or for worse, I think the way you beat a bad idea is with a better idea. I'm quoting Amos Oz, who's the mm. Israeli writer. I never forgot him when he said that. And the, the way to um, come up with better ideas yeah. is not to purify your echo chamber. It's not to get, it's very tempting for guys like you and I, you know, it's very exciting for me to be able to even be around guys like you. I love Sam Harris and, you know, I love Jordan Peterson and you, you're very, you, you guys are very intelligent. You're highly educated. Um, and aside from the fact that personally I like you, but but it would be very easy for all a bunch. When you have a dinner, typically what you see right. is people who've read the same books, listen to the same TED talks, yeah, uh, watch the same programs, and have a similar background, educational background. I think that's um, boring. I think uh, I just do, man. I just love getting a Navy SEAL, um, a, a pro boxer who's never yeah. read a book. Uh, I, and then I put him with a D1 basketball player. Then I get a mathematician over there. And then I get an economist over here. And then I'll throw in a 90-year-old sometimes. Yeah. I like to do that. A guy who's lived forever who's an actor, like my friend Jack Betts. Um, and, then I'll, and then I'll throw in just uh, 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 two, two. Usually I'll get two people who I know aren't going to say much, but they want to listen. You need an audience. And what you get right. is idea sex. Yeah. You get an idea orgy. We had an people idea orgy. And people, no, nobody looks at their phones, man. And it's 1.30 in the morning. And guess what? Everybody's learning from Eric Weinstein. And I knew that was going to happen. Because you come in, and you everybody there is, you know, heavy-armed and tight in the belly. And everybody can talk no, about but every, Manny but look, Pacquiao. But all, but all of these, all of these uh, controlled savages are, like, quoting poetry or yes. they're talking about history. To me, and, and you know, it's just funny to hear you say it. I, you know, you say guys like you, and I always felt the comedians and the musicians and the people who, you know, even study chess or, or jujitsu, this is all one family of people who have, you know, as I've called it before, a relationship with the unforgiving. Like in chess, you make a move, mm. You, you take the consequences yes. of the move. With rock climbing, you, you make a, a, a reach for a bad handhold, you have to deal with whatever comes next. Yeah. Comedy, same thing, mathematics, et cetera. And so to me, there is a commonality, which is, are you engaged in some activity that is not, that the, where the feedback is not mediated by th somebody's choice? Like there's no judge when you're a rock climber who says, well, I think that was an 8.3. Yeah. It's the rock. Yeah, it's the rock. Yeah. Well, I don't, I think sometimes 
anytime you have a group of people that are all in the same discipline, you know, the one great thing, so, so, you know, we talk about fighting. I love to box. And one of the guys there, Malik, uh, I don't know if you remember, Malik sure. was the tall, yeah, tall, thin, tall, thin black guy, about 6'1", 154 pounds. Uh, Malik's been boxing since he was seven. Now, Malik was going to be on his way to be a world champion. He gets world champions ready. I, I know from other people that Malik gives world champions or did give world champions fits in the gym, as in he'd light them up, as in he's, he's something special. And what's fun for me is trying to box with him. And I talk trash and I put in my mouthpiece and my headgear and I, and, and I, I try to, I cheat and I step on his foot. I kick him sometimes. I do everything I can. Anytime he wants, he can he can put me to sleep. Anytime, right? And he's nice enough just to pat pat me around. And I I'm the old man. I'm swinging. I try to hit him. I do everything I can to try to hit him. Right. When we're done, he's taught me a couple things. I'm building my tree of knowledge when it comes to boxing. I love doing anything I'm bad at because it's humbling. And somehow I think it opens other portals. Uh, you know, it kind of somehow stimulates. I become better at comedy. I become better at things. I don't know why. Um, and then what happens is we sit down and he asks me, because he's on this education kick, because right. he didn't have the benefit of an education because he was always boxing. And so then it's time for me to sort of tutor him as we're warming down and we just talk over a meal. So it's a beautiful kind of symbiotic relationship where I get so much from him and so much wisdom and he gets so much from me. Now I'm also 20 years older, which is the only reason he can beat me. <laughs> All right, whatever. Okay. But the point is that they're they're so so. I don't know if I'm answering your question. Well, no, you're I, actually getting to another topic, which I'm fascinated by. You can continue the riff, or I can jump. No, into. please. So there, there's a there's a I don't know how to say it exactly, but kind of a, a a pattern that I've noticed that I haven't heard much commented upon, which is that social interactions get really rich when people can pass power back and forth. In other words, if you have some kind of power. And you, and you sit on it, it's not nearly as powerful as if I somehow give it away to you and you give it back to me. So for example, if you look at a, a happy couple, um, maybe the man praises his wife to the hilt, talks about how he married up, et cetera, et cetera. And in return, you know, she, she talks about yes. how, you know, what an honor it is being with a man she can look up to. And the idea is that they've both exchanged power and build that, something in the diet. But okay, that's a very important, that's a, and that's a very important idea and at the crux of why I put all these people from different ilks together, right? Great, say more. So, so one person has $100 million, the other person is having trouble making rent. What I like about putting all those people together that are so different is that, <clears throat> yes, yes, Eric, you might be smarter at theoretical math, but you have deficits too. We all do. We all do. So you're a, you may be a superstar over here. Yes, Mala can knock me out with a right hand, but that is relevant only when we're in the ring. Right. Right. Um, it, it's a little bit like um, so. So so all of us have these deficits. All of us have these weaknesses. Where are you smart? Where are you brave? Where are you strong? Well, it depends. But we are all dumb, weak cowards. Uh, depending Some, somewhere. Yes. And so when you try to get good at something, mm -hmm. you learn very quickly what your limitations are, what your strengths are. You learn a lot about yourself. And one of the cool things about people who've been in a ring or in a cage or on a mat 
is they are very aware of how tough they're not. There is no one who you know who fights who hasn't been surprised, no, surprised, knocked out, humbled. You're not getting good at combat, which I'm not, but you're not getting good at combat with a big ego. Enjoy that, because what's gonna happen is they're gonna figure you out. You've gotta constantly stay humble. The best fighters are the ones, the ones that I know are the ones who are always going back to class, always learning. So. Of course they're gonna be humble. Of course they're going to give back. Of course they're going to, it's like my buddy Amir Peretz, mm -hmm. who is uh, who's this like Israeli, you know, badass soldier, but now teaches self-defense. He's the most humble, loving, giving person in the world because he has a very, very intimate understanding of what real violence is about and how easy it is, how easy it is to take a life. I mean, we're just flesh and bone. So there's no such thing as tough. There just isn't. There just isn't. I, I don't like those words. There's no such thing probably as strong. They, we are all terribly vulnerable. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, I always talk about having children, and you, I hate loving something that much because it's like watching a balloon float around a hot lamp. Well, we're all that way. Well, you're the first <clears> person actually who's uh, said this. This is what I always tell people about having kids. That the main problem is that you don't want to love anything as much as you end up loving your child. Oh, I mean, you know, thanks for giving me something I, I, I can't bear to lose. Right. You know, Jesus. So did you get emotional just now? Well, yeah. I mean, because I actually lived it. You know, I, I thought about a relative who lost uh, a son. Oh. And, um, you know, we, we've had two losses from auto accidents. And you, you see people... Just, trans, just transformed by a loss that they couldn't control. There's no way to protect against yeah. it. And what it left me with was this idea that nobody, you're, the most enviable person in the world is one knock on the door away from being somebody that you would pity. Yeah. You know, you would just that's, think. That's so true. And so it's, that's what, that's what, that's the weird thing for me about envy, which is, um, I've never had a billion dollars, but I have a good friend with a billion dollars and he's let me borrow his lifestyle uh, for short periods of time. I had another friend who owned an island. And so, you know, he let me borrow his island. And so I've at least seen and felt a little bit through pretend and play what it would be like to have a fantastic amount of money. And I wish I could give this as a present to everybody to just try out the lifestyle for a day or two and figure out what it would do for you and what it doesn't do for you. And one, one thing it doesn't do for you is that there's no way to keep your children safe. You can just do the there's, best. There's no way, dude. There, 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 that's, that's for sure that we are always, I think Jordan Peterson was talking about, you know, in the Bible, the Garden of Eden still, it, it's, as great as it was, a snake still got in. Yeah. I mean, as, as even God couldn't keep a snake out of the Garden of Eden. I mean, there is always danger lurking. And you have to come to terms with that. And one of the things that I think um, I like about understanding violence, at least, shooting a gun. Right. Uh, uh, getting knocked out, uh, getting tapped out, uh, getting close to that a little bit. I went to a war zone, you know, did stand up in Afghanistan in 2007. Uh, you at least 
you something about it makes you feel way more alive man you feel a lot more alive um and maybe the closer to death you are the more alive you feel and i gotta tell you after i came back i was talking to my buddy dove davidoff we were terrified all the time because the suicide bombings were at a high and they'd be in these humvees and stuff i started getting addicted to that fear i mean i got i i I, i'm I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody who's been in a combat zone, but just my, the little bit I was there, I think 11 or 12 days, um, I got, and then we did a simulation firefight with, uh, you know, lasers and stuff. And I, I could feel that adrenaline. I was, I was jonesing for it for a long time afterwards. And so was my friend. We talked about it. I can't imagine going through a real firefight. You know, PJ O'Rourke, the the Mm -hmm, author. So he, he, I, I wish, I think it may have been Tennyson that he was actually referencing, but he, he said, um, we used to discuss the drunk delight of battle before we decided that war was a bad thing. And, (laughs) you know, I'm on record of saying that I like everything about war except for the death and destruction. That in some sense you need life and death, uh, risk at least to catalyze certain things. And then there's a question about does the life and death risk need to involve conflict between people. And one of the things I'm curious about is the structure of the buddy picture, which is a Hollywood staple. And in the buddy picture, you have to establish the two people really detest each other. And then they have to go through some sort of transformational conflict. And only then do they realize that they both have sort of a complementarity that allows them to be truly close. That's right. Look and, at what happens to, to guys who, who hate each other before a fight in the UFC, beat the crap out of each other. I mean, they're full of blood. What do they do? They hug. Yeah. They hug. Well, they hug again. Most of the time. Well, there are times saw- when no, but most of the time they hug and we want them to hug, you know? No, no. That it, it, well, I mean, boy, there's so much to do right here. You saw this weird um, briefest fight in the UFC, this Askren, yes. right? Yeah. That, that, that was different. Well, that, it wasn't even a fight. No, it was a surprise attack. Yeah. That's Jorge Masvidal. That's, that's, you can't talk trash to Jorge Masvidal for three weeks before the fight the way Askren does and then expect him not to showboat a little bit. You can't do that to Jorge Masvidal. For Jorge Masvidal, that's a real fight. And he... He still doesn't like you. Like he said, he goes, if I see him in the supermarket, he might get slapped up because I don't like him. You yeah. Know? Well, you know? so this is the issue that some fights are transformational and they, mm-hmm. they produce a closeness and some fights don't resolve whatever the tension is. Yeah. And so one of the things I'm super curious about is, is it your experience? Like if I think about the fist fights I got in um, growing up, I would say that, I ended up closer to about half of the people that I fought. Mm. And it had to do with some, I don't know, intangible, ineffable quality I can't quite put my finger on. Can you say when it is that you find that a fight can be transformational in male intimacy? I don't know. I think, I think it, I think, look, I mean, we are, fighting is the purest of sport in a way. I mean, what is football? It's a game of inches, yes, but it's it's simulated war. Well, it's it? like multiple layers of indirection from war. That's right. And basketball, baseball, these are- Even more. These are very, I mean, the competition is very heated. These guys are giving it their all. Um, there's something about fighting where, especially when it's MMA or something, uh, but for that matter, really boxing or anything, where, you, where you're coming as close as you can get almost to what it's like to see a man kill another man or a woman 
nowadays kill another woman with their bare hands. There is something primordial to that that brings us back to when we were, you know, when when we first evolved, you know. Well, so we talk sometimes about the Chomskyan pre-grammar of language. Mm. And I've, in other places, talked about the, uh, is there a Chomskyan pre-grammar of, of religion? And is there a Chomskyan pre-grammar of violence? Where whether well, we've, st- we, I think we were probably communicating way before we language. developed language. Well, that's, I mean, I can, I can, there are parts of the world I know I can get in a fight right away just, just by holding a stare. And the way I'm standing, I promise I can get a yeah. guy to go, what's a, you got a problem? You want to get in a fight really very quickly? I, I'll take you down. I'll take you to Brooklyn. I'll take you to Long Island. I'll take you to, uh, I'll take you to anywhere in Boston or Philly. I yep. promise for that matter, Jersey. Right. And, uh, and by the way, not necessarily in LA, but let me take you to the Inland Empire. Yeah. Just stand and stare for a little bit. Right. Just posture up. Something's going to happen, you know? So we are very aware I think we have antenna that have been have been developed over millennia for when somebody's uh, trying to take what's ours. Right. And I always say this about I'm writing about vulnerability now. Yeah, I'm writing about what it, what you know men are supposed to be vulnerable and we're supposed to sit with our sad and cry and get in touch with all. Okay, all right, man. But I'm to dealing point. I'm dealing with a lot of his genetic residue I, for a long time. You know, well, but- I had to hunt. you know with with a spear or whatever and i had to you know i i I have to believe that a lot of this is wired and and if you think of what it was to be a human a human being in most cases throughout our history whether we were in a small village or whatever if you were in a vulnerable if you were in a forget for that matter you could have been in baghdad in 1258 and the Mongols or Constantinople and what was it, 14-something, when the, the Ottomans broke down the wall. The, the, our history has been, here they come over the hill, they're going to they're gonna break down our walls and kill us and take our women and children as slaves. Right. That's the story of history. Yeah. So I'm, if you'll forgive me if I'm not a little bit ready all the time to fight for my life. Well, so, so this is, boy, am I glad we're, we're here. Sometimes I think about the idea that vulnerability has to be earned through strength. So for example, if you look at Vin Diesel, if he's wearing a feather boa, it's only because he's Vin Diesel. He can't wear a feather boa if you're not really you deadly. Gotta, you gotta have a little, another man's blood on the on, on the feathers. Well, well you know, or, or I don't know if you ever saw, what was it, um, with uh, Tim Roth as the swordsman, and there's a great duel in the end. Uh, is it Rob Roy? I love Tim Roth. And he's like he's 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 there with his like frilly cuffs mm-hmm. and thing, but he's got better swords uh, sword ability than anybody, oh, yeah. and he's just completely deadly. Yeah. And so, in some weird way, in order to be comfortable with that vulnerability, you actually it, it it's almost like the dessert that comes from having proven yourself as, as somebody to be not to be trifled. With. Well, I think that. Um it's an interesting thing because when you really study the language of vulnerability, the, the, again, the fighters, the, the, I, you know, I know enough combat Navy SEALs and these guys. Uh, I think they have a real sense of their own mortality. I mean, because they've either had to take lives or they've seen their friend. I mean, it's so right. it happens so quickly. So th- th- it's a combination of they become vulnerable, but they don't sweat the small stuff. I think a lot of this politically correct insanity about you said this word and that makes you a racist or whatever it is we're just we're so offended all the time 
most of those people, it, it, it goes back to what you were saying. We don't have an existential threat anymore. And so uh, most of those people don't really know and haven't really suffered because they're mostly white. They haven't really suffered this this egregious racism. Slash Ezra Klein, God bless him. But Ezra, you know, he he. I listened to his his him talk and stuff. And I mean, Ezra is so painfully educated, and I can tell he's read every book in the world. And he lives in Washington D.C. And he probably has great dinner parties. And he's friends with all kinds of uh, intelligent intelligentsia. And and he can talk about how vicious a uh, slaveholder. Thomas Jefferson was and would beat me at any debate, but I don't think Ezra necessarily really is friends with anybody who works with their hands, who smokes or who has punched people in the face for a living. <laughs> and it's not a knock on him. And I might be wrong about him. I, I just, I, I think that, that his, um, I, I think if we were under in different circumstances, we wouldn't have time for this shit. We wouldn't have time for this shit. Well, we let, me, let me make another point. Sure. When, when I, when, this is a better way to say it. I watch when I'm in a restaurant and I'm and and it's a busy restaurant and I see a woman from Malaysia, another one from the Philippines, another guy's black, another guy's Chinese, another guy's I don't know what they look like. They're this wonderful composite. Then there are a couple of white people, and they're all trying to get food to the customers. I promise you, no one there is thinking about what your sexual orientation is, what your color skin. Well, fuck off. I'm trying to get food on the table, bro. Right. And this noise. This noise over here, you people are making. That, well, that this is not fair. This is, we're like, dude. Okay, good. I got work to do, man. I got work to do. I'm making a living here. Can you get the fuck away from me and let let the economy do? Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What it's supposed to do. Right. That's why, ultimately, I'm a free market guy. Get out of my way with your... I, I, I don't think we're free anymore. I think we're taking our freedoms away from it. You can't say anything. You can't express an unpopular point of view. Well, so this would be a portal point and something I'd be super interested in developing. Um, it, the, for a while, we started we started hearing comedians saying, I won't play colleges anymore. Yeah. That colleges have become unfun. It, it throws me off my comedy game. It's not something I want to be doing because people are so easily offended. And part of the function of comedy was to explore that which is offensive and to give people access where normally they would sort of block it off and not be able to do it. And then Joe Rogan, our mutual friend, said uh, something interesting to me. He said, it is now the golden age of comedy. I said, what? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, we've started figuring out how to tell these jokes after a period where we couldn't figure out what had gone wrong. And the best people are now able to explore these things because some new skill level had been unlocked. Does that resonate with you as a, as a standup? I don't know. Uh, as you saying it, I was thinking, hmm, that's an interesting thing. Um, it's certainly way more lucrative now, and it's easier to reach a, a, a wider audience and also your own audience. So, you know, you, you can niche so you and Joe might have different audiences? Well, well, we may have the same, I don't know, but we probably have a similar audience, but I think it's much easier to find your niche. And so that can be a little bit 
deceptive. Okay. Right? So I don't know the answer. He might be right about that. I do think there's some great comedy out there, and I think it's needed. I think people like Bill Burr and Jim Jeffries and Rogan are, are needed because they're satirists, and, and it's probably the last place on earth where you can really speak your mind and express unpopular points of view without uh, suffering the kinds of ramifications you would if you worked at Google, Facebook, uh, or the People's Republic of Apple, you know, wherever it might be. These places are pretty tyrannical, it seems. I don't know. I haven't worked Well, you mentioned Bill Burr. So again, I I, I don't know if you know this, but I did 10 to 15 minutes of stand-up. That's all I've ever done. I didn't know that. It was... Um, you're very funny it's very it was very terrifying and very and very fun um but it was more or less impromptu uh one of the things that i felt um as an outsider though other than that i have no experience is that when i saw bill burr talking about particularly gendered issues i felt like i was watching alex honnold the rock climber go up el capitan (laughs) it was so it was so fraught it was so dangerous of course it was um can we can we geek out for a second? Yeah. Who is who is innovating really new stuff, and and not from the perspective of being in the audience, but you know, like there, there's a secret bar behind the comedy club we were just discussing, and I w- was invited back there. I, I got a chance to listen to what are comedians talking about in terms of craft. Can you t- take us in? to this world? What is Ch- going on Chappelle, in craft? Chappelle and Rock are still doing it. They're still they're still taking on whatever. Whatever is sacred what territory, um, I, I don't know that there are. I don't know that there are any innovations. I think. I think the the only the only thing you can do with stand up is to, you know, I always say write about what you're ashamed of, what you're afraid of, who you're who you're pretending to be versus Uh-oh. who you really are. These deeper questions. How do you want to die? What do you want to say when you die? What don't you want to say when you die? You know, these are the kinds of things. What do you want God to say to you when you die if there is such a such a thing? What if there is God and you don't believe him? These are the questions that I like to play on fears and ask questions. I think that's where you get um that's and it goes back to the salon thing. That's where I think you start sort of uh striking common ground with okay. your audience, right? So when we, one of the things I truly believe, and it, it comes from the fact that I lived in seven different countries until I was 14 years old. Didn't really, it? yeah. I was born in the Philippines. I then moved to Calcutta, then Bombay or Mumbai. And then- uh, Say Mumbai. I know, right? Well, well, so, so it's Bombay. Well, I heard, we, our family, so you know my wife and my wife from, from Bombay. Oh, she's the one who told me. Right. So she's the one who corrected me. Well, That's so- That's why now I say Bombay. So, so the weird thing is, is that it's one of these things where educated people think that Mumbai is the hot happening, That's what I say, yeah. sophisticated way. And I think her perspective is that that was actually the result of the Shiv Sena uh, who had a Maharashtra for Maharashtrans campaign. So Shiv Bombay, Sena. sorry, just, he I, didn't mean that people. I don't know. Those are, so I'm trying to be popular. What, I, what, 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 what's your point of view? I'm trying to jump on your bandwagon. Well, just, just that um, it's like New York state realizing that New York city is captured Okay. And deciding it's going to enforce New York State culture on okay. New York City, right. which is much more cosmopolitan. Okay. So All right. Bombay. All right, but so, you were so you've lived in so the, the Bombay, then Lebanon, then Pakistan, then Lebanon again. The war broke out, stuck there for six months, evacuated wow. to Greece, then Saudi Arabia, 
Then I'm 14 years old. I go to boarding school in Massachusetts, then college down in Washington, D.C., and then, uh, and then of course, L.A., New York, New York, L.A., back and forth, and finally, I'm the international movie star that I am now. Well, TV. But, but so, so, so my experience, right. my experience being around all those people, all those Muslims and all those Hindus and all those Christians and all those, all those Arabs and all those Pakistanis and all those Indians and all those Filipinos and all those Afghanis and all those Ethiopians and Eritreans and Somalis. This is like the 12 days yep. of Christmas. And, and by the way, in, in that, I, I travel to communist Russia, communist China when it really was communist Russia and communist China, Yemen, uh, Syria. I was everywhere. I mean, you can, uh, Jordan, you name it. Um, seeing things like leprosy, advanced stages of leprosy in the marketplaces of, of Yemen. I mean, terrifying things and feeling so lucky to be an American and, and, uh, and knowing, not knowing why I was never hungry, but seeing real starvation in Kenya and, and Tanzania and the outskirts and, and, and the guilt, the fucking guilt of, of going, what, why am I so protected? Why do I feel safe and so, so full of food? And I'm watching, you know, I'm a pretty compassionate, imaginative person. I, I hope enough to, to be enough to feel guilty right um but the one thing i got from that experience was that essentially i don't give a shit what your religion what your culture is essentially we're all very much the same we all enjoy humorous insults we all which is goes back to you know and we all want a better life for our kids and we all love to laugh and we all want to feel safe and all you have to do with anybody from a different culture and i don't care where they're from right is see them, acknowledge that they are like you, compliment them a little bit maybe, know a little bit about where they're from, or ask them some questions about what it's like to be who they are, and man, oh man, will all the doors open. And so that's why in my salons, yeah. as it were, um, I, I, I love proving that over and over again by taking the most eclectic group I can and throwing them all together and watching all those ideas find, um, you know, I guess life. And that, that's the secret. Well, so one of the things that I, I think about uh, in this area is how much, um, to get this formula to, to work, it really requires skill. And there's an old definition of a gentleman that I'm very partial to, which is a, a gentleman is someone is a man who is never rude by accident. Mm. And I think one of the problems we're having is, is that there are people at very different skill levels. And so if you think about, um, you know, the terrifying words that one must not say, uh, that really is sort of an admonition when everyone is now broadcasting via social media or their, uh, you know, podcasting or Twitter feed, whatever it is, that we're now frightened that people of very low skill and low experience are going to start opining at scale about things that in, in ways that are really destructive. So for example, if you think about um, how far we've come from George Carlin's observations, Carlin died right before the financial crisis. And uh, you know, his perspective was that there wasn't a word you can't say. There are no bad words. There are bad contexts. There are bad people. There right. may be bad intentions. Um, we're now in a world where Bill Maher is lectured by a guy who founds NWA as to what words he can't say. How does how does that shake out? I think that's just a bad idea that will will be scrapped 
eventually. I don't know how much damage it will do. It's a fad. A lot of these bad ideas are repackaged yeah. and, uh, and they will cause their damage. But hopefully, because we have enough history to draw from, hopefully uh, they will uh, lose their relevance. Uh, I, I worry that there's this, there's this strange movement to go back to old-fashioned collectivism. I mean, this old-fashioned really? idea of socialism and even communism and marxism and and i uh i don't know what this is these are young people who don't and as i really i really pay attention to it they don't have a command of history they don't know a lot they just don't maybe i'm just older and i've done more no, reading no, I, or living I, but I lived in those socialist utopias and 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 i went to those countries when they were very earnestly socialist and communist and and I'm always amazed that these ideas, and they come out of academia, they come out of these professors, and I know a lot of them, and I have arguments with them on my other podcast. Um, they, they are people who just don't have a lot of it. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how many books you've read. You, my friend, don't make the trains run on time. You, my friend, have never had to make turn a profit with a real business. You live behind walls in a university. And those people are important, but they can also be just as dangerous as somebody with no ideas. So it's very, what you point out, just to riff off of that, is that um, what if you have a system which effectively functions in a cult-like way, which is very few people who are academicians have ever left uh, education. In other words, they start at kindergarten or pre-K. That's what's going on. And if you leave, you are, it's very suspicious if you return. Yeah. You can't take five years off for most people. Now, occasionally there are exceptions, but the system as a system of selective pressures is selecting specifically for people who never venture outside their initial environment. I have talked to very smart academic all-stars. People talk about them all the time without going into names. And uh, one didn't really realize that they were, they were trying to raise some money for something they wanted me to host. And he didn't, he didn't really understand that there were agents out there that could raise sponsorship. Mm -hmm. He just didn't live in an economic world. But he's very happy to... And we had a big argument about it. He's very happy to uh, advocate for an 80% tax rate for anybody making over a million dollars because he wants to go back to what, what he thinks is Scandinavian-like socialism, which is wrong. Scandinavia doesn't have that kind of a tax rate, so you're wrong. But also um, this hunter-gatherer ideal. Uh, okay, all right, uh, you know, good luck with that, but you shouldn't be making economic policy. You're not you well, don't. so you're bringing up something which I think is terrifying. What happens when the sense-making professions, that is the people that we deputize as our experts for taking in raw data and saying, okay, tell us what this means and tell us what we should do next. And you find this in education, you find this in, um, let's say, journalism and, and the, 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 comp, the um, sort of talking head class. All of these sort of institutional sense-makers are caught up in business models, which are now selecting for people who have very little experience outside of this world. And yeah. I, I feel like if we don't come up with jobs for that class that pay very well, what you're going to get is you're going to get very ideological people with very little outside experience who are imagining a collectivist world that functions beautifully, but not thinking about the amount of coercion and violence that it would take to accomplish that and whether or not it's something you want to even do it to begin with. There's that idea, there's that saying I love, which is um, 
an idea is a very dangerous thing to have if it's the only one you have. It's a very dangerous thing if it's the only one you have. I see. And I think that there there is this orthodoxy, this homogenous, you know, kind of collective mind that comes out of a lot of these places. And and you're right. I mean, there's no room. What? But, but I, I have two things to say. One, I think I worry that the a lot of these big companies, I mean, to express even a different point of view, even to cite the science behind the difference between men and women will get you fired. Well, this, this it gets you-, you fired. I mean, it, it really can affect your 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 bottom line. So it is a form of violence or a certainly certainly uh, uh, what is the word coercion in, in its in, in a real sense, you know, you conformity most. But you know what? Americans are hard to fool, and uh, and Americans don't like extremes. And I, 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 there is a shitload of pushback, not just in this sort of this hard left kind of like mentality, but it's a big pushback, um, and a lot of intellectual pushback as well, in my opinion. And it's only getting stronger. I mean, I, I, there's a reason that reasonable people who are responsive to evidence, like yourself, like Jordan Peterson, whoever it might be. Um, there's a reason these people really hit a chord. People like to listen to them because they're like, I knew this other stuff wasn't making that much sense. You know, I I feel like I'm stuck in this ideological world and I don't, I don't, you guys are calling me racist or you're calling me, you're telling me I'm not into equality. I'm not even thinking about that. I'm a fair-minded person, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of pushback. Well, I, I mentioned this to Sam Harris, and I, I think I'm going to maybe do a show on this podcast um, called The Hilbert Problems. Uh, the topic would be The Hilbert Problems of Social Justice. And so maybe the, the easiest one is you can't possibly understand my experience because you don't share it, and you must understand my experience because it's so important. And so you just take these two things, and then you say, look, I want to discuss those. that as a couplet. I must understand and I cannot understand because that's your problem after all. And what if I can actually write a screenplay, let's say, or do an impression on a stage where you say, that was so good that there's no way you could have inhabited that character without understanding me. I felt that way, for example, if you remember uh, Eddie Murphy is the old Jewish guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he does a better Jew than any Jew I know. Of course he does. He's an actor and he was around them. And you know, exactly. Right. Exactly. And so- this idea that again we, it goes back to what it goes back to the fact that we have a lot more in common with each other than we well but you, in order to in order to unlock that though don't we have to have enough safety to and, and this is kind of this puzzle for me about the, the weird ju- social justice movement if you create cancel culture mm. you're telling me that it is not safe to open my mouth and say something that's right your ideas are harmful. Therefore, I'm not going to even bring them up to a conscious level because they're far too dangerous. What if one of them came out of my mouth inadvertently or in, in a joke that went south? Now you've got a really serious problem, which is what if some kind of bigotry and some kind of prejudice is just, it's garden variety. It's not very interesting. It's universally distributed. Everybody has it. That's probably, I mean, I, I have multiple feelings about how I feel about different people in different circumstances. If you don't allow some of this stuff to bubble up and come out your mouth and, and, and look at it for the brain fart that it really is, yeah. then you're, you're going to sit there weirdly guilty 
either angry that you can't say that you want to be able to say it or you're going to say wow i I really am ashamed that i actually think i always say we all of us in my my i think i have to joke all of us have at least 10 thoughts an hour maybe a minute that would get us fired (laughs) i mean and thank god by the way thank you know jonathan Haidt. i don't know if you've heard him talk on this subject but he wrote the coddling of the american mind and the righteous mind he's just uh, i love him and and uh but he said that there is this he compares it to the, I think, the Corazon of the Philippines, I think that's who they were called, who uh, would gain status by killing uh, the most people, you know, essentially your enemy, and you'd take their heads or you'd take a trophy, maybe a piece of their hair, and you gain status that way, you got more women that way, and, and this is an example of a sick culture. I don't give a shit how, how pure it is. It's a sick culture, right. it's a, and there are a lot of examples of that, and we seem to be in some pockets of this country. There is this, this uh, you gain status by finding the racist, by finding the the bad guy, uh, according to your orthodoxy, according to your puritanical, well, your puritanical yeah, like idea a, of what a human being should be. It's and a it's, scavenger hunt that's gone out of control, like Pokemon for bigots, and there aren't enough bigots not, to play it. It's not new, though. It's a form of the Inquisition. Yeah. It's not new. This is this again. Human beings love purity. They love the idea. You get these people who love the idea of trying to purify. And create their own utopia, which a lot of historians have written about. The most dangerous thing a human being can Purity. do, a, the most dangerous thing yeah. a movement can endeavor to do is to purify uh, or create a utopia. Because what you'll do, uh, and if you have any questions, see Mao's China, Pol Pot's uh, Cambodia, Stalin's uh, Russia. I mean, Stalin would have people killed because they had the wrong idea of what communism... And then you take whole groups because... They've already been corrupted. Their brains, you can't really re-educate them. They're too old. So they're all wearing glasses. Anybody who's wearing glasses is an intellectual. They read a lot. They have a lot of this poisonous capitalist stuff in their head. Let's just bring them out to the killing fields and let's get rid of them. That's what happened throughout history. That's what happens when you have ideologues running things because they're not smart. They're fanatics. They don't open themselves up to other points of view. I don't know why nobody ever talks about this. It's exactly what you're saying, this issue that purity is weirdly the most dangerous concept we have. When Very people dangerous. try to purify, terrible things happen. And we have a ritual on Friday nights. We have a, a weekly Shabbat dinner. And in our family, we, we take the Shabbat uh, cup of wine and we put two drops in it. And there's always this question, why do you put two drops of water in the wine beforehand? My interpretation is that it is us learning to live with impurity, that these two drops of water can bother your mind. Well, now now the wine isn't pure. It's been watered down. It's adulterate. It makes no effing difference to the wine. And it's teaching, my the way I view it is, it's teaching my children to avoid becoming fanatics about purity. When I think about the off-ramp, I don't know if you've ever seen this in, in Saudi Arabia, on the road to Mecca, there's this wonderful off-ramp that says, uh, Muslims only, Mecca this way, all others, <laughs> this is your off-ramp. Yes, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think about that and I think, wow, I wonder how much of the, the, the division in Islam between the things that go towards this jihadist craziness and the things that make for this wonderfully rich, uh, welcoming culture 
some in some ways they're inextricable, but I wonder how much of it has to do with which portions of the culture have learned to live with impurity. Well, I look at our culture. Thomas Jefferson owned 600 human beings when he wrote All Men Are Created Equal, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed to their creator certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He owned 600 human beings when he wrote that. I mean, we, we our peculiar institution, I mean, slavery, we've been a country with slavery longer than we've been a country without slavery. But you'd be hard pressed to find a freer, longer standing democracy throughout history. We are a modern country precisely because we continue to wrestle with that inconsistency. So this is something I'd love to dig into. One of the weird things about hearing the patriarchy, the patriarchy, the patriarchy is the one place that was an actual patriarchy was the founding of our country. And what's hysterically funny and just sort of beautiful about it is that they, these guys wrote with enough generality that they didn't make the mistake of saying all men other than Africans are created equal or all men are created equal and not you women. They spoke with a level of generality well, where- think about how general life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is. Think about that. Right. You have the right to life, you have the right to liberty, and you have the right to pursue happiness. Not happiness, but to pursue Sue happiness. happiness. Meaning Struggle. If, hap- if pursuing happiness is, is I don't know, living in water, in a pond, whatever it is, then that's, you have that right. Right. right? And that is, that's our real religion. That's, that's what we come to defend, you know. Well, but, that's but, his right. You but, hear it. But the, the theory, in some sense, was so much more advanced than the instantiation at the founding of the country. One of the things that I find hysterically funny and also hopeful is that we we have the opportunity in this country, and we don't do it much, to teach both every lousy, stupid, hypocritical thing we've done as a nation, many of them violent, many of them deadly, and to teach patriotism on top of that. Because if you think about this in terms of all countries have histories uh, which contain things that they'd rather sweep under a rug, and somehow patriotism has been sort of try people on the right really try to take it over. And as a fan, somebody who comes from a very progressive family, which suffered because of, let's say the McCarthy era. Yeah. I love this country and I know every lousy thing it's, it's ever done. Yeah. Um, do we have an opportunity to sort of reboot patriotism at a more mature level where the love of one country is an adult love rather than a childlike love? I think that most people, I happen to believe that most people are patriotic for the right reasons. I think America is an idea. I mean, the founding fathers solved the political problem. The Greeks couldn't do it and no one else could do it. The Ottomans couldn't do it. The Romans sure as hell couldn't do it. This was, this is, I mean, these are a bunch of men in their 30s, with the exception of Benjamin Franklin, got together what was in a hot July in Philadelphia, right? and came up with this thing called the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, think about it for a second. It's insane. It, 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 it's, it's, it's astonishing. Checks and balances. You've got a, you've got a Supreme Court. And I mean, and it was, what was, I, the, the, the legend goes, you know, when, Ben Franklin came out 
and she's the woman said what have you created and he said a republic Public, madam if, if you, you can, can keep, keep it, it. yeah <laughs> it's great but this is this is an experiment this is a verb uh it has to be constantly defended george washington said careful or human beings will invent ways to take their own freedom away from themselves in the name of virtue and everything else so um I think that for the most part, what I appreciate about patriotism in this country mm -hmm. and, you know, is, is the, the, that at least people truly believe that we, that democracy, having a say right. in who governs you and, and, and the big question in political philosophy, who governs the governor? Well, in our case, it's the people. Now I know we can get into you know, lobbying and how we're losing that ability and special interests, of course. But for the most part, that is always what's fiercely debated. You know, we are worried always that Washington is becoming an economy of influence, right. uh, that, that, that we are losing our meritocracy. But, but it's still the fact that the, look at how vicious the press is to Donald Trump and amen to that. Whether you like him or not, you never want to lose the ability to this constant nasty battle. Oh, I want to take issue with this. Actually, this is the first place where I might have a disagreement. Okay, with you. but this nasty battle, this nasty battle between that's fake news. You're full of shit. He's a scumbag. He's a sex addict. All these things. He's a yeah. rapist. I don't think actually it's ever been any different in uh, in in American politics. American politics has always been what would they they used to compare Abe Lincoln to an ape and all kinds of things, and they tried to start all these sexual rumors about different candidates. This has always been a dirty place, but um, I think that's probably what you get in a vibrant democracy. The big difference, the big difference between our democracy and someone else's, uh, let's just take Iran. Yeah. Is if the hardliners lose, they die. They don't live to fight another day. When we lose a peaceful transition. It's a peaceful transition. So far. It's incredible. Yeah. And, and 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 the big the big thing was I think with between Jefferson and John Adams. I think John Adams wanted a standing army and Jefferson was against that. And, and, but it, it was, they, look, they were very worried that they, they called them these wild eyed Jeffersonians. I mean, they were very worried that Jefferson was going to go back to this agrarian utopia. And I mean, he was a kind of a, there was a lot of talk about, we got to get rid of these. This is, this could be a civil war. I mean, anytime you have a revolutionary war, anytime you have a country that wins their independence, almost right. always they break into a civil war. The two, the, 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 somebody's got to fight for, for power. This is the this is the only country I can think of yeah. that didn't have that happen. And so, I, I don't I, I don't know where how we got along on this, but 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 it. it you mean so me, like India and Pakistan during partition after oh liberation? Oh my god! Yeah, a horrible, a horrible civil war. Right, and it in fact the, created the formation of Pakistan. Right, but so so there's something very special about about our patriotism, about our democracy, as messy and as nasty and as quote-unquote partisan as it is, maybe it's supposed to be that way. Maybe, maybe government is supposed to move at a snail's pace. Well, I think when, when you have some, I think we're in a very dysfunctional period where the amount of nonsense, um, you know, I, I refer to K-fabrication from the word kayfabe, uh, which is the system of lies that professional wrestling uses to tell its stories, right? So you've, you've I never heard that, but I like it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, I do. I do have to say before you go into your thing, I love when you come up with these things because when you left the dinner, uh, 
Malik, a professional boxer from, you know, Louisiana and Vegas, and my buddy Herman, who played D1 ball, and he's from Philly, and both of them, both of them were like, man, I fuck with Eric. I fuck with that dude. He's so fucking smart. He was saying shit. I wanted to, I, we, what, when can we have another dinner with that dude? Like everybody, everybody uh, wanted more Weinstein. So congratulations. One, and your wife, by the way. She's a superstar. She's, she's great. She's, she's fantastic. But uh, keep going. With Try to get her on the show. The, uh, when she's it comes busy. to, K, to, K, to K, fabrica, uh, K, K fabrication, um, I think that we're in a period of nonsense where we're talking about all sorts of things. And the best that can be said of us is that we are inefficient in unraveling ourselves. What I worry about is that we actually need something like an enemy in order to remind ourselves of how to get along despite our differences. Mm. And I don't know whether part of the problem is that this unprecedented level of peace, even with foreign entanglements since World War II, is in fact deranging us. Is that possible? I, I do think I've heard that theory, okay. right? I've heard, I've heard that sort of without war, I think it was the British general, I can't remember his name, he said without war, you know, the population becomes very materialistic and petty. <laughs> and until you have a common enemy, that's what unifies the country and gets people back down to what's actually important, values, duty, honor, things like this. Um, I, I don't know. I think time, I think time will tell. I think there's an, there are a lot of challenges. There's enough, you know, you were talking about combat athletes and you know, you're all these guys. You, I think you said something so funny. I feel like I was on the Serengeti with, with a bunch of thoughtful cheetahs over a kill. It was the fucking greatest metaphor I've ever heard. It was so great. But what you forget is that all of us think of you as the alpha male. No, because, but it's true because you come in there and you're not physical, but you're funny as everybody. You're, you're just cracking everybody up. But then at the same time, everybody knows, everybody knows you got the biggest brain in the room. So we start asking you, you were, I asked you about string theory and it was so fucking hilarious because you started talking and all of us were like, I don't know what he's, what's he talking about? What, you know, you, well, the loops, if you look at the loops in the cones of the sphere, we have a predator. I'm like, what the fuck? Hey bro, in, in English, stop with the Greek you're speaking already. Well, there but, was, there was a know. fair amount of wine. There was a fair amount. Of wine. There was indeed. But the point is, is that you had your own alpha status there. So there was a, no. there was a very, you know, there, uh, well, do you want to get into so, so what? Well, the, the, I'm sorry, the, yeah, sorry. The, um, to tie that back in. Um, it's hard. It's, it's hard enough. I don't know that we necessarily need an existential threat trying to make it in this economy and trying to put food on the table and, and gain some leisure time is still as hard as it ever has been. So maybe that's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer either. Yeah. But I do think that one of the things we need to get back towards, and, and just riffing again from the ways in which um, I was observing your crowd deal with stuff, is twice I've been in a social gathering with you where there's been one female and a bunch of these guys. <laughs> and I've watched how careful all the men are to elevate um, not only the female, but whoever is there with the lone female yes. in the group. Yes. And the, the idea being that when it, when, it, when it was my wife, the idea was people were, were holding me up and being a little kinder and a little nicer yes. because you want to make that person look good in the eyes of, of the woman at the table. And it's the a woman, really astute observation. And well, I, th I agree with you. That's exactly what was happening. Well, because, because 
in my mind, we've gotten, we've broken something a little bit in terms of male female relations. And we are going to be in a process of either rediscovering what was lost or re reinstantiating whatever the abstraction was that was chivalry. Do you have any thoughts on, on where that goes? Like for instance, look, my, my experience, um, with the men I know that I'm friends with and the, the hardest, toughest guys that I know and stuff like that, they're all gentlemen. You know, if, 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 uh, if you have a guy who's not being a gentleman, who's rude yeah. to the woman at the table or who is, uh, making her feel embarrassed or that that guy's not in our fucking group. Well, you're care. first going to correct, like, oh, give yeah. a few corrective signals. Oh, and all of my friends will. I don't know a friend. I don't have a friend who wouldn't be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what I think is super important and attractive about chivalry is the idea of... Protector. Uh, well, of protector, that, that there is a functionally important role, I'm going to try to figure out how to get at this thought, to the violence that is... You know, if there's a knock on the door, for example, at three in the morning, my model is, is that mom goes to the nursery and dad goes to, to the front door to handle it. Correct, sir. And Correct. That there is an expendability of us males that we accept as part of this bargain. That the is, women that and is, children and f- that's in our DNA. Per- bro. It's in our DNA. That's in our DNA. Right. You're the first line of defense. You're the first and last line of defense. That's 100% the case. And, uh, I, I don't apologize for that. And I don't have a friend that's not that way. Um, that's, that's, uh, and we want to be the, I of mean, we course want we to be do. the expendable. And that's attractive and that's noble and right. that's beautiful. And that's men at their best, at their by best. the way. Yeah. Uh, that's what people don't realize when you talk about, I always say this, man, I'm, I, you know, when we talk about gun control, right. I don't like guns, dude. I don't like them. And I don't want spree shooters out there. And I think I, I, I listen hard to people who are pro-gun control because I want to find a solution to right. this insanity. Okay. Right. But people have to understand that men like myself who own guns and have them in the house, right. I don't own guns because they're shiny and they go pow. Right. I own guns because they make me feel like at least if the shit hits the fan, worst case scenario, you have recourse. I can protect the people I love. Yeah. That is so deep in me, man. And and that's what it's about. So so give me a little credit. I may be a caveman, yeah. but um, I'm trying to be the best no, but, caveman but, I can be, man. You know, it's also like the other thing is like, you can be a dirt bag, but don't be a dirt bag. You can be a dirt bag. Yeah, you got a lot of girls, you know. <laughs> but if you are... Um, if you are hurting people's feelings, right. humiliating people, uh, I, I, I tell you, man, I, I, I had a good friend and he had, he got gonorrhea yeah. and I call, I said to him, he goes, Hey, do you have a doctor, dude? I need these pills. I go, okay, good. I go, make sure you got to tell the girls because the girls you were with, you, uh, and he was with like five girls that right. they can get it and, and they can go barren. Right. And he said, I'm, I'm not doing that. And when he said that, right. I call it the click. I call it the click. I go, you can have sex with all of them. Right. But now, now you're risking someone's ability to have children, dude. Right. And, and it's embarrassing. You got to make the call. And when I realized he wasn't going to make the call, I never, I, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I never spoke. I, that was it. That's it. You're out. So that's, that to me is chivalry. Well, so <laughs> you don't have to be perfect, but just take care of your wake, bro. Right. So one way of, of looking at that is that, 
Um, let's imagine that there are a group of men and a group of women who both sort of sign up for this kind of an agreement. Like in the story that I was saying about the knock on the door, I perfectly believe that mommy should go to the nursery with a shotgun if she's worried that somebody's going to come barging in. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a question of women should be defenseless. It's no. a question of the first line of defense and who's expendable. And this is just part of the deal. And I understand if some people don't like that, they don't believe in it, but those of us who do believe in that model should be able to locate each other as a culture and say, hey, this is the compact that, that we're interested in perpetuating. By the way, you know, I talk, and I'm sorry to bring up my special again, but in Complicated Apes, this last thing, I, I talk about how I'm always amazed that the women's movement hasn't spoken more about the women of the UFC. And I do this whole bit about the idea that I did not expect women are moving into this space and they're doing it very effectively. I, if you had told me eight years ago that I'd watch women throw hands and feet and elbows and grapple with the same skill and ferocity as men, right. I would have I would have told you you're crazy. I would have said they're not biologically capable. Or or that interested. Or that interested. And then you watch Rose Namajunas, uh, Joanna Yenjenjek, Valentina Shevchenko, Amanda Nunez, Holly Holmes. I can keep going down the list. Uh, uh, Misha Tate's no longer working, Ronda Rousey. The, Ronda Rousey, you know, she might have gotten knocked, uh, knocked out by Holly Holmes. She will go down in history as the, a, a very significant woman who was beautiful and also fierce. She kind of redefined what she said. Uh, the greatest thing I ever heard, she goes, my body's not designed to fuck millionaires. It's designed to beat the shit out of people. <laughs> and it was like, hey, man, wow. sister. She's one of the first people I've ever been starstruck in front of. I was just, <gasps> you know, she was she was in my audience one time and, and I, I didn't I didn't perform well. I was I've never done that. I was nervous. I was like, so I was so fanboyed out. Um, but these these women are are proving to as far as women that are changing hearts and minds the right. ones that need to be changed like a bunch of bros like myself etc yeah the guys out there who thought that this arena belonged only to men they're ch they have changed our minds and let's talk about lgbtq or whatever let's talk about amanda nunez whose girlfriend is in her corner yeah. she kisses her girlfriend her girlfriend's hot and she's a fighter too you got a couple of lovers yeah. kicking ass and changing the world i mean this is this is why are we not talking about uh violence against women uh when it's done by another woman in a cage goes a long way in changing the heart and mind of a chauvinist like myself we should be talking about yeah. nobody's talking about that because of course they don't watch the ufc well but it's also you know just there's a confusing aspect which i think is good confusion um how many of these gals when you see them doing you know their uh what do I call the pre-fight um, thing? The way in the stare down. Well, this, okay, the stare down. Not the way in is the other thing. Yeah. So you weigh in, then you do the stare down. Then you do the stare down. How many times have I looked at these gals in the stare down and said, "Those are two really super attractive, super feminine super women." Super attractive and super super feminine, feminine and yes, and both of them could rip my head off. Oh my God, Valentina Shevchenko is so hot to me. <laughs> Misha Tate's so hot to me. Right, right. right. They're all so hot. I mean, the majority of them are physically beautiful. They're they're so attractive to me. Right. I mean, it's 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 like you're just like, are you kidding? You you have this skill set and you look like that. I've seen them. I've I've seen you know Kat Zingano. I've, I've I know some of them. I've actually gotten to move around a little bit and train with some of them. And and it's just like they're they're beautiful. Well, it also it you know it calls men to higher purpose. If if 
one, one of the great things that could come out of this is that if men want to retain some sense of, you know, being the protector, that they're going to have to up their game Hell and, yes, they're gonna have and to that people are going to have to, uh, you know, raise better boys. Well, that's going to be inevitable. I think, um, you, you have, uh, I, I, I will say I, I have this sort of visceral reaction to the feminist movement cause I'm a guy and it's not my generation and I, it makes me feel insecure and stuff, but <laughs> there is something really cool about women stepping into these spaces and maybe men can take a breather. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's like, I, I do this thing where I, you know, I could never burst into tears. I'm not really allowed to do that. You know, Esther Perel at all? I know the name. She's a sort of a next level um, relationship expert. I know Esther Perel. Yeah. 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 Um, I was hanging with her and she was trying out an idea, which I thought was, was pretty good, which she said, I was trying to, she said, I Esther, I was trying to figure out masculinity. And what I realized is that masculinity is both incredibly powerful and incredibly fragile. Yeah. And, that comes with a lot of fear men are very are terrified terrified they'll be revealed to be a coward we're terrified of every aspect i mean well we don't sit in sad we're not allowed to sit in sad right so women i think uh, have more license or they're allowed culturally to sit in sad to cry to feel and to eat ice cream or whatever it might be men are we can be sad for a couple minutes, then we have to convert that sad to action, rage, right. or target it toward the person or thing making us sad and attack and kill it. And I, I, I think I feel that very, very deeply and, and directly. I've, I think that's been, that has been the, the, what I've had to deal with my whole life. I hate to say it, but that's, that's been handed down to me. Do you accept uh, I'm, as I get older, I'm trying to wrestle with having a relationship with that side of me. You know, um, yeah, uh, my father was a Marine. My father, uh, um, you know, he told me a story recently about when you say, you know, um, visiting war memorials. He went to Iwo Jima. And I think only if you're a Marine, you're allowed to, and you can go. There's one day a year, I think, when when people are allowed to walk the island. And he was there. And, uh, or, or family of a Marine or something. And he was there and an old woman, she was about 90. She mm. was walking on the beach and she was having trouble because the sand is very deep and it's volcanic. And, and he said, um, can I help you? What, what brings you to the Island? And she said, my husband was here and he was 19. He was killed. And, and she said, um, she said, I always wanted to walk where he died. I always wanted to walk and I'm walking this whole perimeter. Wow so that I can feel like I stepped where he was. I don't know where it was, but at least I'm there. See how you get emotional? That's yeah. what happened to me. When my father told me that story, I, got, I started to get emotional, yeah. but I couldn't do it in front of him. I couldn't, I couldn't cry, but just telling you that story makes me want to cry. Yeah. Because it's just, it was so, it was such a beautiful thing. My father walked her all the way across the island or, you know, wherever that was, man. And, and, there are some things worth crying about like, and this is one of them. <laughs> this is one of them, you know, um, some things are just too much to bear and, and some things are too beautiful and some things are too, um, they, they just, they just remind you of how awesome and awe inspiring, uh, humanity can be. And, and what happens in the face of terrible tragedy, that sort of bonding, the beautiful stories, the beautiful stories of, 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 that's why I studied, uh, Nazi Germany. That was my area of focus. And Didn't know that. yeah. And so when you, when you, when you hear 
about the girl whose sister, it was her birthday, and she found a blueberry in the fields they were having to work, and she wrapped it in a goddamn leaf and gave it to her sister for her birthday. Those little things, man, those little things are what we stay alive for. And those stories about those little things are, are probably why a lot of us are artists, you know, trying to figure out a way to get people to laugh and cry. That's, that's the whole deal. That is our respite from, from this constant, this drudgery, this tragedy, this uncertainty, this fear. It's what, it's what Schopenhauer and especially Nietzsche talked about is that, yes, there's the will. We've got to sleep, eat, fuck, right. and, and then we die. But there, are, there, isn't, there is a way out. There, there are portals, if I may. Uh, and, is, and those are artistic it? inspiration and conversations like this and great meals with friends yeah. have salons. And that, that's what we stay alive for. And you can turn your life into a circus. Now, you may die young and leave a good-looking corpse, right. but I'd rather that. I'd rather live dangerously. Than not have enough transcendence in uh, existence. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah, and you can't do that. You can't do that living in this purified echo chamber in a world where you're terrified to insult, offend everybody under the sun. You won't have the kind of sex you want. You sure as hell won't have the kind of laughs that you need and that you deserve. You'll live in a sexless, barren place where you're constantly trying to be right and not offend anybody you won't even be able to raise your fucking voice and i think that's bad for us well i think it's bad for our culture you know somebody put that to music please <laughs> they will God, trust me i, I know i can't guys. believe you didn't start playing the f- the harmonica something right here i know um you know i was going to potentially open this series with my cousin who uh, her name was Eva Kaur and I spoke to her right before we launched I guess the the portal and she said look I'm going on my annual pilgrimage um, and when I get back I'd love to and she's from Indiana I never met her I've spoken to her a bunch on the phone and she was a Mengele twin and her sister um, Miriam um, was in the camp with her and she was telling me on this phone call right before I left, she, uh, she was saying that she looked forward to an annual pilgrimage to Auschwitz where she was and that Miriam, her sister had stopped thriving in the medical experiments. And the only way to save her was to steal food to to, to the point about the, the blueberry, the sister. So she stole potatoes and she was telling the story about stealing potatoes and that the penalty for stealing potatoes was death. Yeah. And so she stole these potatoes and got caught. So she was clearly going to die. And then she was scolded and let, let go. Now she was just a little kid. And she said, ah, being part of the medical experiment means I'm protected by Dr. Mengele. Mm. And so nobody can touch me. So she continued to steal potatoes in order to save her sister. And she's telling me this crazy story. And I I think I'm going to do an episode because she went to the extraordinary length of forgiving Mengele. And this caused a huge hue and cry. Her name was Eva Kaur. And I was dying to start the podcast. And then I get this phone call from her son. Um, And I find out that she's died uh, in Poland on this last trip. Wow. So I wow. I don't get to bring the story the way I wanted to. Yeah. Man, was this chick tough. Oh, f- like, what? 
you know, yeah. to the whole idea. And when, when, when I tell the story, I'll, I think I'll do it on a separate episode, uh, of the importance of forgiveness and as a, almost like a weapon and as a, a, a structural transformative ritualistic option. If you've been victimized, this woman gave nothing up in terms of toughness and then went to these extraordinary counterintuitive lengths. One of her last posts, I think is her eating uh, maybe a McDonald's meal in Auschwitz and sort of laughing about how, how amazing that there's a McDonald's near where uh, we had automated human ritualistic killing. Well, Anne Frank, you know, Anne Frank, uh, uh, I think she wrote, I still believe in my heart, human beings are all good at the core. Right. You know, and her father said she shames me with her positive, positive, you know, outlook. Uh, but I, I think that's the, that's probably one of the reasons Christianity seems to endure the idea that, uh, Christ preached forgiveness. That's a powerful thing. What you're really saying. I mean, I know right. as an actor, for example, you know, I had an acting teacher as an actor, if you're playing Mengele, Right. If you're playing Pol Pot, Stalin, or Hitler, right. you can't play him like a monster. You know how you play him? You play him as a man trying to solve a problem for humanity's sake. That's way more interesting. And that very well may be what was going on in their twisted hearts. Even the Nazis had uh, had a, f a sense that they were doing God's work, that they were being somewhat moral, uh. they were getting rid of this problem called the Jews, etc. And th this is why ideas, and if you just rely on logic and rationality, you better be careful, man, because human beings come up with very, very logical and rational reasons to get rid of those people over there. It's one of the things I love about the, the, the thing that religion has to offer, which is that all life is sacred. The Buddhists talk about sentient, sentient beings. The Christians talk about, you know, whether or not you're in a coma, even if you're unborn, Listen, you know, th these these things there and they're unwavering about those things. Sometimes that is the vanguard. Sometimes that is the reason you have to be stalwart in, 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 in those kinds of ideas. They're not convenient a lot of times. I'm a pro-choice guy, but I understand the value of these kinds of things because they do protect you against, uh, you know, the rationalists that come in, the scientists, the engineers who come in and start trying to run the world. Well, don't trust your own brain. I think it was Paul, Paul who said, don't trust your own heart. Yeah. I'm not a Christian, by the way. <laughs> just, You're not. I, but I, no, I'm not. I, I've not. I haven't been to church. I don't go to church. I've been to church twice in my life. I, 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 but I, I respect and understand what these fixed truths have to offer. It's my only contention with Sam Harris, who I really like and, and I admire. But um, uh, I'm going to give Sam just a quick lesson if I ever meet him on how not to, how not to start a conversation. Sam, don't say, let's, we have, we need a war on Islam. Don't say that right. You can't do that because you lose everybody. We got to, we got to be a little bit more. We got to, he's, he's so, he's so painfully honest. Well, you know, and, I went on his show about this point. No, you, no, I, I didn't. Okay. No, so I did it. But, but I'm a fan. So, you know, but I'm a but, fan of Sam's too. I mean, we're great friends. I, I tried to indicate to him that there was something counterproductive, not about his line of thinking, but about his chosen mode of, of expression. He gets because, emotional. I, well, honestly, Sam gets emotional. I think that's what it is. Well, but, and he sublimates it, right? Yeah. So, you know, you, you almost never see him. I, I, no, I took video of him. Find his way through. I took a video of him playing um, centipede on an old arcade machine and people loved it because they said, Oh my God, he's human. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's very, he's, he's very, very Zen. He's very, he's very human. Yes. The issue that I had was 
that I didn't think that Sam understood what he was projecting. And that I said, you know, you need to say some things about the positive aspects of this culture. Well, it was like you open up this box and he's like, I love the call to prayer. I said, what? He's like, I love the poetry of Rumi. And so he starts extolling there you go. some of the, some of the advantages. He's, a, he's an incredibly religious guy for an atheist. I mean, I, I do his app waking up yeah. and I love this book, uh, spirituality without religion. Right. And I love his podcast. And I, and I think that he's genuinely sincere about trying to get an honest conversation going. I, I, I fall in line with so much of his thinking, but I, I do think that he, I, I do think he, he could, he could, uh, he, I think he does. I think he gets emotional. Yeah. And I think then he goes on the offensive and that's, that's he's very not- upset about people not understanding his central message. And I think it, few, yeah. few people understand what it is. Yeah. He is not claiming that is that um, Islam is a, a terrible thing that it has nothing to offer. He's not claiming that religion is bereft of good ideas or important ritual. What he's weirdly saying doesn't get picked up is I, Sam Harris, believe that there is nothing that can be done irrationally through a crazy belief system that couldn't be done better at scale um, using reason. But that's where I substrate. disagree. Well, I agree. I, I disagree Yuval, too. I think Yuval Harari would disagree. You need myth. You need story. And, and, and so, so, so the value therein, let's just take Christ as an example sure. or the Bible or any story or even Plato's forms were about the idea that you may not be able to touch perfection, but my God, you can imagine it. You, perfection may very well not exist, but you can not only imagine it, but you should reach for it. You're going to miss, but the reach is what matters. So, so doing the right thing a lot of times might be very much against, not in your own interests. I mean, think of the play, The Crucible. I mean, he's going to die for Christ's sake, but he's not going to give up his you know, he's more than his appetites. So right. there's more and the man for all seasons. These are these stories that we think about. The the Mohandas K. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Jesus Christ. Well, they these people endure and they we, we speak of them and sort of with heads bowed because they put their own interests. It was not there was nothing rational about what they did in a lot of ways. I mean, you could say, say I suppose more? well well, I mean they 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 knew that they were putting themselves well, so somatically they were definitely putting themselves and, at huge risk. They 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 exterminate they they erase themselves physically. But um there's something about Have you ever read Gandhi on violence? Yes, a long time ago, yeah. Have you ever seen this riff that he did where he said there are three things I want to talk about. I want to talk about pacifism. I want to talk about violence and I want to talk about nonviolence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he says, I believe that my philosophy of nonviolence is superior to the other two, but given a choice between violence and pacifism, I would always choose violence. I don't remember that. I know okay. Thoreau was his, a huge influence on him, but so Gandhi, the Gandhi that we think of as this simple, kindly, yeah. uh, saintly figure is not actual Gandhi. And Gandhi, well, he, was a, he was an Anglophile. I know he's a, a lawyer in South Africa. Who, who, yeah. Well, there's that. Yeah. But he actually believed. He said, "Look, don't mistake nonviolence for pacifism. Nonviolence requires the most courage because you're going to put yourself in harm's way with a pre-commitment not to defend yourself. And if you can't get to that level of badassery, choose violence. Yeah. And." Why? Because the worst thing you can do is to be passive and to let your nation uh, 
you know, be raped as, as India was by, by the Brits. So this is like, well, some- it may have been a strategic, cause I don't think that that policy of nonviolence would have worked against the Nazis. The Germans would have just shot them uh, and they would have just opened up on anybody. It, it worked with the British empire because the British empire had elections. They had parliament. Well, there's a question of who does, who does the nonviolence? Yeah. And I don't know if you know about the Rosenstrasse protest in terms of, you want to talk about weird portal effects. Mm. I think it was 1943 in Berlin a bunch of women who were married to Jewish men or partially Jewish men, but who were not Jewish themselves, decided that they would show Nazi Germany what's what and get their husbands back. And they organized a protest. I don't know why this isn't famous. It makes me feel like I'm crazy for bringing it up. Um, They organized a protest in uh, Rosenstrasse, uh, the street, and they made such an embarrassing show in front of the Nazis that the Nazis, I believe, acquiesced and got these men out of the camps and returned to the women. So it was like a, wow. wow. Well, this is the thing about the power of wives and mothers and beautiful young women, you know, who are, you know, nubile just means marriageable. Um, We are so, when women organize themselves effectively, they can bring male systems, you know, really to their knees because there's no good way of saying we're against motherhood, we're against love, we're against anything that is aspirationally kind of pure. Um, yeah, somebody has drawn, people have drawn correlations between women's rights and healthcare and the advent of healthcare and things. And Which is why the Women's March was so confusing to me because that was a tremendous amount of power to mobilize, but without a very clear follow through and with some very dubious, um, you know, I think that a lot of us fear that there was some kind of anti-Semitism that was Mm. behind some of the organization of that. But just in terms of what could you get the Nazis to take note of? I've always been fascinated by who protested the Nazis effectively. There was another case, um, which you might know through, through boxing. Um, I think the guy's name was Johannes Trollman, who was a Sinti, like a Roma and he was incredibly good looking and he was doing the Muhammad Ali thing years before Muhammad Ali of being very athletic as a boxer. So he was kind of a matinee idol of his time. And Germans were fantastic audiences for boxing. They were very well informed about the sort of science of the sport. And obviously this guy had to go down because he wasn't pure and Aryan and German, mm. but the crowd, the Germans loved him. Yeah, And when he was, I guess, the, you know, the, the refs gave the fight to the other guy. There was an outcry in Germany. Mm. So they changed the rules about how you could fight. And it was to make this guy's fighting style not work. So as a protest, I mean, it just, this is such a great story. He divorced his wife because he thought he was a danger to her. Wow. He coated himself in flour to mock the purity of this, you know, racially pure German right? Yeah. And he got into the ring with the crowd behind him and he took the effing loss, Jeez. right? And he gets sent to a camp and everybody reveres them. It's like, you know, the South Africans respected Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Well, the Nazis fucking respected this guy. Yeah. And well, they, the Germans at least. Yeah. Even the Nazis. Yeah. 
You know, because in some sense they Screw know it. that they're doing the wrong they thing. They also know that he can kick their ass with it if it. Well, if but it you know, it's it's what you just said about fragility. Like here's this guy who's a genius with his fists, who's this unbelievable figure in his heart, mm-hmm. and what is he doing? You know, he's mocking them and he's sacrificing his own life. So he ends up in the camps. He's 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 holding fighting clinics, and I think somebody. I don't know, kills him with a shovel or a pistol or something. So it's a terrible story. And there's a ring in a park in Germany on a slant. And it's just the slant is the unfairness of wow. the situation, right? Wow. And he was reinstated. His title had been taken away and it's been reinstated all these years later. Somebody needs to make a, a major movie. motion picture. How, of this you know stuff. what amazes me is how you're this theoretical mathematician with such a poet's heart. <laughs> well, no, it's amazing, dude. But, but that's, but isn't, so now who's getting emotional? Well, I love it. Yeah. I love, well, it. I love it too. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's about heroism. It's about violence. It's about even in a tragedy celebrating, you know, these are the, these God, are the guys whose lives you want to slant sing. at a slant. Right. And like, what a subtle, beautiful nod mm. to a great life. Cause he's not even depicted. Mm. Um, that's, you know, I was going to, I think what I'm going to do with the show, not every, not every episode is going to be transformative and trans and, and transcendent. But I think one of the things I want to do is to organize the world and its sites for transcendence, like this monument, this, this broken ring needs to be on the map. Yeah. People need to know there and they need to go on pilgrimages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel those stories need to be right. I agree with you, man. And you're you're in such a unique place to do this. I think this is gonna be a great podcast. I think I think you're gonna love you, Oh, I you, hope so. Well, you've got so many, you know, you're you're so interested in so many different things. And I think you're look, the idea is to get the ideas, the good ideas that are stuck in books and stuck in people's brains who usually don't have an ability to talk to a lot of people, get them out and into the ears and into the brains of the people out there. Well, and but, I, mean, I also want to make sure that, I mean, I don't want to hide the fact that, you know, I'm stuck. I'm hypocritical. I don't exactly know what we're supposed to do next either. It's, it's the struggle. It's a discovery. It's the discovery. Right. You're trying to look for the portals. You don't know where they all are. Some of them are going to be false leads, but transcendence, you know, is what you were saying before. Transcendence is available to everyone who's willing to look for it. It's not available at every hour of every day. Well, that's my problem with cancel culture, because what you're saying is, you know, we are who we were, we are who we are, and we are who we could be. And all of us are trying to be who we could be, right. or at least most of us. And I'm certainly very different. I don't know the guy. Who, I don't know Brian Callen. The, what, the Brian Callen, 20-year-old Brian Callen, 25-year-old Brian Callen. What an asshole. I mean, or at least what a dum-dum. Or at least what a what a naive, ignorant, say- arrogant little shithead. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just a different person now right. because I'm 52. I mean, it took me a long time to become the human being that I am. And that's a pretty flawed person, but at least I'm a little less flawed. I've made more mistakes. I have better pattern recognition. Uh, I'm a little bit more compassionate, uh, I hope. And, and, but you know, the, 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 we are verbs. We're verbs, man. Say more. We're not nouns. Like this. Okay. When you cancel me out for yeah. something I did or said, my God, you're suggesting I'm that way all the time. No, I'm not. I might have been having a moment. I might have been confused. I or might have might been be angry and outside of, your of myself. Personality I'm sorry? If you think about yourself yeah. as, as a conference of different modules, like there are modules of all of us that we're we symphonies. don't like. 
some some instruments sometimes are playing louder than the other instruments. Right, or that piccolo is flat. A hundred percent. Right, and the idea is that because of the piccolo player, the entire symphony is canceled. I mean, you know. And, and, and who's doing this canceling? Show me one person who doesn't have these sets of issues. That's right. I know. I know. Exactly. And who is behind all these? Like, it's just the Twitter sphere, right? I keep hearing it's not the real world. But, but it is my, the- my problem is it is the real world. My problem is that you can lose your ability to earn a living when you're canceled. Well, so this is... This and is, your career. My theory here is that we've moved from physical violence to reputational and economic violence. Of course. And so the idea being that um, the one thing, I mean, I don't know that I've fully done this theory anywhere, so it'd be great to do it here with you. The, the institutions have these rules on them. And these rules are causing every institution that gets formed, whether it's a for-profit or a non-profit or in different sectors of the economy, to take on certain characteristics. The one thing that doesn't have this, this feel to it is the individual. The individual cannot be legislated. Now, the individual may de- be dependent on the ability to access the banking system. I mean, one, one uh, show that we have uh, talked about is an erotic actress who has not been able to easily maintain merchant accounts or to gain credit. And there's a question about should we be harassing people who are legally employed in jobs that somebody doesn't care for, yeah, uh, which but, scares me. But that everybody, everybody watches when nobody else is watching, you know, porn stars. I mean, you know, if you're going to criticize porn stars, please never watch porn. Well, this is the thing. When I, when I was doing these shows with Sam Harris, I would talk about how we lie. And I would say, who here, who here watches Pornhub? Yeah. And like the it's audience right is here. silent. Yeah. <laughs> silent. I'd be like this, bro, me right here. I can tell you my favorite porn stars too. I can tell you everything about it. Not, I, I, I can even go why, go through why I don't watch it anymore because it doesn't get me off because I don't believe the girls. <laughs> but then I got the girls I do believe. Any other questions? <laughs> well, this is the thing. But, this but, is what I mean. You because you're at, in it. At my salon, everybody will raise their hand. Well, this is the thing. But because you're an individual. But then when it comes to how you're employed, yes. depends upon are you on network TV? What Are you on cable? You know, What is it that we can and can't say? What I believe is because the individual is the thing that is still free of this kind of um, legislated goodness. In other words, there is goodness that actually occurs and there's goodness that is only there because we legislate it. Mm-hmm. The people who don't, do not like uh, things that are outside of their control are going to reputational attacks because that's the only way of shutting down the individual. That's right. And so that, right. that reputational violence has gotten far more extreme for people who speak out. That's right. And I think that that's really part of the story behind you brought up Jordan Peterson before. Yeah. It's not so much, in my opinion, that any one of these people is saying something brilliant, although brilliant things are said by some of these people. It's more that people say, is there anyone willing to stand up for central values? Like well, core. But 60 Minutes. Yeah. 60 Minutes had him on, and there was the there, there was the caption, I think it was 60 Minutes, there was this caption, and then they did a recap of it, maybe at CNN, and under it said, alt-right professor. <laughs> How fucking dare where, you? Well, guys? where does this come How from? How dare you? Some asshole in the control room. No, but Brian, they it's want universal. To get views. It's universal. It's not, there is some story here, and I don't claim to have it, which has to do with how institutional media 
finds a completely fake narrative and then just through perseveration repeats it so often that people think it's true. Well, this is why this is why fake news, quote unquote, has caught on. I I'm not a Trump defender, let me tell you. Yeah. But uh Oh, when I watch CNN and how slanted they are, right? And 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 watch these lightweight journalists who just have not done their homework, uh, and and they've got three minutes or whatever it is their their opinion pieces and stuff. And I could say the same about Fox News, by the way, in a lot of cases, because Tucker Carlson drives me fucking crazy because he doesn't really listen to any of his guests. He won't even let his de- guests talk. But but you know, it's like um, it it it's. It's just not true. You're not being truthful here. You are, and and people know that. People get it. People go, hold on. Like when 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 Ocasio Cortez calls enough Americans racist, right? Well, the, we all go. Well, we the lot, very white states. The majority of these the very white states voted a black president twice. You're being a little insulting here to all of us. That's a terrible thing to call a lot of Americans. I travel this country more than she does. Yeah, and I travel country and I and I perform for and talk to and I'm around real people, not the elite. I'm around people that work for a living with their hands, etc. Right. I can promise you, and a lot of them are white. I can promise you. I promise you. They, they if you called any of them a racist, and I'm talking about people in the town, so they they they'd look at you and go, "No, I'm not." No, I'm not. Well, but you can't so, get out of it. Oh, so you deny it? That just proves, you know, that you are. Exactly. Well, you so, don't know because you don't know where you're. You know. Well, but what Jesus, I re- well, well, now what do I do? Well, what I really dislike about this is that the language is so impoverished. Like Ugh. the issue of binary, good guy, bad guy. Well, it, exactly. I mean, if I'm in a situation where I have a lot of information about a different community. I'm going to form positive and negative impressions yeah, of every single possible community. But you're not. But see, ideologues don't like nuance. Well, so this There's is no the war on nuance. nuance. Well, because nuance, you know, the way the way I, I keep encountering this, I've, I've made a big point of this. They view nuance like the Israelis view an olive grove. It's a place for snipers to hide. So we have to. We have to take down the olive trees so there won't be any snipers. I have to pee so badly, and that metaphor just made me forget about my pee. Which is why we're taking a break with Brian Callen. Taking a break. When we return, Brian Callen on the portal. (laughs) I've always wanted to say this. And we're back with Brian Callen. (laughs) Brian, if we could, I would love to switch into another area that I don't think we've really touched on much, which is your fascination with... um, pretty deep science and the way in which it even works its way into your comedy routines and into your thinking. Yeah. How is it that, all right, first of all, I have this impression that I grew up in LA and I used to come to some of the comedy clubs. I'd go to the improv probably more than anything else. And I'd see comedians and they'd suddenly switch into other languages. They'd switch into discussions of science or really abstract discussions of history for the material. And I came to think of comedians very often as being kind of unregulated superminds. Is that something that you think is, I mean, is that? I don't think so. Do you know where it comes from? I've been, I've been in the business too long to think that most, most comedians aren't interested in anything, but I mean, uh, no. Like the uh, Steve Martin who who played banjo and the Robin Williams who switched into a million different head spaces in the space of a minute. Well, I mean, look, the, the, 
I always say that I'm in the business. The, the, the one thing I that drives me is original self-expression. Okay, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in, in expressing myself fully and originally, and that responsibility is always pretty daunting. You know, you want to, and so whatever it takes. You know, there's there's uh, you get to a point as a comic where you know how to make people laugh. I can write stuff, then that, that's a bag of tricks. Then can you be thematic? Can you be original? Can you be saying something? Right. Um, and th th that's where the real challenge is. You get older, you, you're writing an hour of comedy. Well, you know, okay, let's see what happens now. What, what are you trying to talk about? I mean, I spend all this time boxing and trying to stay in shape and f going beyond my biology and being ready and, you know, and keeping my home safe and whatever it might be. But there are too many flanks to cover. Well, wh wh where's the funny in that? You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm getting older and I'm way more vulnerable than I, I can even imagine. So, um, again, like, let's see if I can be original about that. And let's see if I can discover something and shock myself and surprise myself with, with my next, uh, 60 minutes of comedy that that i guess so so unregulated superminds I, I don't think of it that way i just think about um well, just how that unregulated, i probably I meant to say dysregulated oh dysregulated okay yeah dysregulated yeah i i, I just uh it's a huge privilege to belong to this very small fraternity this small group of people that can get up in front of anybody in the world and make them laugh i i, I that's never lost on me right so i i i I feel very lucky that I can do that and that I'm part of this small group of people that that does that over and over again. So you have have shown like essentially no interest in promoting your own stuff. I wonder if I could just ask you to take a couple of younger colleagues and maybe lift them up for our audience. Who should we be watching who's coming up who you think is really deep in terms of observation and saying use use well, comedy Gerard to be a Carmichael was doing stand up for a long time and I think he said he wanted to quit which is a tragedy because he was so unique. Uh, and his success is not an accident. I, he was opening for myself and a guy named Dove Davidoff, one of my favorite comics and favorite people. And and uh, I just immediately was shocked at how smart this kid was. No money. Uh, I think he comes from North Carolina and he, he was Spike Lee found him and he, he did some specials, but they don't do it justice. He's just a very special guy. Um, but uh, in terms of sort of the younger up and coming folk, uh, I, I, I think Ali Mikofsky is really funny. I think a guy named Chappelle Lacey is really funny. I think, um, I think Fahim Anwar is really funny. Uh, there are some really, th these are people at the comedy store. Go to the comedy store. Okay. And on a Tuesday night, on a Wednesday night, on a Thursday night, and sit in the original room. Mm -hmm. And uh, I promise you, you'll see some people you've never heard of that'll crack your ribs. And uh, and those, the, those names come to mind immediately. Just funny. I mean, funny. And then you got the people like Sebastian and all these other people that are working and are, are, have already arrived. But, but yeah, there there are a lot of young people who are who are, again, responding to a confusing time. Right. They're responding to this confusion. It's coming into the comedy world. I mean, you know, there's old things you say, things you can't say, and I mean, geez, all right. Well, you know, I mean, I don't think there should be any rules. Well, I think I think that. 
the rule that I like is that the more skilled you are and the more your comedy ultimately uplifts people, the more not only you should you be allowed to say, but the, the more you're obligated for the rest of us to show us how to find the humor, the absurdity. And I was, I was talking gotta to be humor for Christ's sake. And you hear stories about people who are in hijack situation, hostage situations, even in, even in, in, even in prisoners of war, they tell fucking jokes. Right. It's all you've got, man. Sometimes. Well, you know, have you ever read this short piece again by PJ O'Rourke, which I think is titled, is it serious? No. And his point is, um, lies are said with incredible earnestness, but it is truth that is uttered with a dismissive giggle. And I just loved this. Yeah, it's really good. And he talks about, um, this, uh, was it Thomas Moore, you know, being executed or forget who. And he, he says, um, you know what his last his last utterances were were jokes about make sure not to miss your mark because i wouldn't want to create a mess or something like that and yeah. you know i i think about that as i tend to believe people who are kind of smirking and giggling without being mean about it just as as a sign of like well hey i'm actually plugged into the madness of all of the tensions in the world rather than just ideologically saying i know which way to go yeah do you um yeah hmm. do, do, tell me about your fascination with science which you're uh, trying to hide and cover up well um i just think that it's um like maybe like mathematics i mean there's a there's an there's First of all, there's a lot of f- people who claim that this is scientific and things like that and blah, blah, blah. But um, I like science because at the heart of science, it seems that the you start with doubt and you continue with doubt. And uh, and usually, the, the, I guess I would define science or the scientific method as that which you can measure and that which you can replicate under the same circumstances. I think I'm right about that. I mean, to an extent, at least there's a, there's a truth to that, that you can't deny. Well, you know, if you're, if you're anti-vaccine, please pick up a history book you, you, or, or just a piece of literature to see what smallpox, diphtheria, measles, mumps, and all these other terrible diseases did to people. I mean, uh, if, if you really are anti, um, uh, antibiotics, if you don't like antibiotics, well, I don't know if you know what consumption is, but it's tuberculosis and it killed a lot of people, including Chopin and some of the greatest minds. So, um, we've pushed way beyond our biology and the, those scientists like Fleming, etc. um, those scientists, those physicists, uh, we owe them a great debt of gratitude. The people that invented things like the Geiger counter and X-rays, and uh, you know these these and 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 a thousand well, who experimented other- on their own family. I mean, I th- was just thinking about. It. I think it's Rontgen's um, wife's hand mm. is being X-rayed. And there's a giant ring on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and then got you know leukemia or something. Well, you know, all, Marie Madame Curie. Curie yeah, I was about to say another one Madame of these. Curie, you know, I don't know if you know Benjamin Jesty. So this was a like a gentleman farmer who was a physician, and he noticed that the milkmaids oh, never right. got smallpox. That's right. That's right. They, yeah. And so he injected his own family with the pus from cows to give them all cowpox, yeah. reasoning the cowpox protected you against deadly smallpox. Yeah. How crazy is it right. that you're willing to experiment on your family? Or the, this guy who did um, the 
that ulcers are not actually caused by stress by a bacteria right. pylori or something exactly right? you know yeah. this the yeah. badass school of science where We're you actually curing, yourself, we have cured hepatitis c which killed my cousin is that right yes we've cured hepatitis c hep c is at least in northern europeans i don't know if it's still because it, i know interferon didn't work at all with african americans but it worked with uh northern europeans to an extent if you right. had, you know the different things you have different biologies but um I mean, we have, I think it's a nine month regimen where we've, we cure it, ladies and gentlemen, cure it. So I, I remember the AIDS epidemic. I, I watched my neighbors die slowly and without dignity. I watched how horrible that disease was. I was in New York City. I was in the theater scene. I was in, I was in, I was in acting class. I watched young, beautiful men die horribly. They had Carposi sarcoma. They had lesions all over their faces. They had one thing after another. I had another friend who wouldn't let us see him in the hospital because he was. Well, I went to college with him, and he just. He just looked like he looked, it would give you trauma to look at him. I watched it. I saw them die. And then I saw uh, something called protease inhibitors come along. And these motherfuckers had to rebuy their property because they all sold it and they had to rebuy it. And now they all live normal lives. And in fact, the AIDS virus has been compromised so often uh, because of these different kinds of cocktail drugs uh, that are becoming less and less toxic, it's it's had to compromise itself so often that it is now something you probably can live with. Like diabetes, only the difference is you don't have to take drugs because it's become such a weakened virus. That's what happens. Yay. Yay to Western science. Yay to science. Forget Western science. Yay to science. It doesn't belong to anybody. It doesn't belong to the West or the East. Yay to to experimentation, yay to doubt, yay to- To reason and compassion where man. reason serves compassion. I mean, this is the thing that makes me bananas. If we had started to tell ourselves, I mean, I don't know if you remember this. One of the lies about AIDS was that it just began in the homosexual community yeah. and that there was no difference between heterosexual and homosexual transmission. Yeah. And that was a an attempt at a compassionate lie. Yeah. But it was not actually wasn't true. Com, well, but it was also not compassionate because the more that you told these sort of superficial lies, the less you could actually get at who was at risk, why. And well, news organizations and and uh, I read a book about it. Uh, I think it was called the News about the News. I'm not sure. It was, it was he worked at CBS or and and there was a lot of pressure on news organizations to go out and find uh, heterosexuals with AIDS. Right, and they combed the the landscape for it and found a couple of women who were straight who had AIDS just to make sure that it wasn't just a gay disease well in Which fact it wasn't well, well but 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 so why so they they couldn't figure out why it was a heterosexual disease in southeast asia and africa but it wasn't in in north north nor in europe in european populations in the middle east well why why was it also a certain uh, and, and gay men got it uh, but in fact the gay men that did get it were the ones taking you know, the, the bottoms, if you will, right. The tops, a lot of times survived the epidemic. And I know a number of them who did it through my theater days. We couldn't figure it out. Was it a secondary infection? Was it healthcare in Africa? No. What, what happened was the bubonic plague. I think what you and I talked about right. that and they have, if you survive the bubonic plague, uh, you, you have some gene variation that developed where you have a resistance to the actual disease, unless it's pushed into your body with a hypodermic needle or, or somebody's dick, if you will, you know, but, but otherwise it's going to be hard to contract it. That's why the army couldn't figure out they'd test everybody for AIDS. And it was the, the 
cases were slim to vanishing in at least people that were admittedly heterosexual. Right. Uh, and then we started to see that there was something going on here, that, that it was, it did discriminate. The disease did discriminate, not because God said it so, but because there was a genetic, there was a generic genetic mutation thanks to the bubonic plague. Uh, but anyway, so, so why do I like science? I guess it gives me some answers. <laughs> no, but it's, it's more than you like science. I mean, you're pretty, uh, you, you incorporate science into your comedy. Yeah. And I was curious as to whether those two parts of your brain play harmoniously. And, and so I, I, I would be so lucky. You have, I mean, I'm nowhere, I'm not even your area code in terms of your ability to jump between the romantics and science. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen how many like topics it. have you jumped between this? I mean, you, you, you're all I mean, over the place. It's I don't wonderful. know, man. You have a deeper, I mean, your ability to you, movies and literature and poetry and music and so I actually never met anybody like that. I'm, I'm very flattered. You're a polymath. I, I, that's how I feel about you. The the thing I was trying to figure out, though, and it's something I haven't cracked, uh, would be: um, can we use comedy as a means of delivering deeper analytic truths? Is there a natural fit? So, for example, if I make something rhyme the brain remembers it more easily. I, I, yes. I upset people by saying things that rhyme are more likely to be true. And what I really mean um, is that when people work out a very pithy aphorism or, or a rhyme to remember something, it meant somebody said this was important enough to construct something that the brain will find sticky. Mm -hmm. And a joke, like almost every joke contains an element of surprise. If you saw it yes. coming, it wouldn't be funny. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. And the answer is, of course, comedy is the lubrication. Comedy is lubricant. Of course. Look, if you want to change somebody's mind, as Jonathan Haidt said, you've yeah. got you've to make them feel safe. You know, this is, this, is, this is where I'd have Sam Harris, and he does a good job for the most part, but I'd have him read The Righteous Mind again if he hasn't. I mean, you know, Jonathan Haidt's damn right about the fact that if you want to change somebody's mind, strike some common ground first. You can't tell somebody who's religious who, because their religion gives them meaning and it gives them a feeling of safety. Right. You cannot tell them, you cannot tell them that they are like, like Lawrence Krauss and people like that, you know, who, you can't say you believe in a fairy tale and it was a book written by peasants 2000 years ago. That makes me really angry when people. Attempt well, that's to what Lawrence Krauss did on my podcast. And I said, Lawrence, you're, you are not building a fucking bridge here, dude. I mean, you are, you can sit there and be right as a physicist all day long, but I mean, uh, okay, cool, dude. I mean, you're doing zero. You're doing no, you're doing a great job of destroying. You're doing nothing to persuade. And destruction's way easier than persuasion. It really mm -hmm. is. It's my problem with cancellation, cancel culture, etc. So, so, so this is interesting. I hadn't yeah. heard this before. Yeah. In some weird way, and correct me if I'm wrong, there is something about the rationality movement, the skeptical movement, that is interested in cancellation of its own, but it's canceling religious culture i think so I, I i get very worried when somebody uses the word rational over and over again because they they are religious in their own way they're praying to the god of rationality i don't think that all the answers lie there yes if you want to figure out a way to have fresh fruit and vegetable vegetables in the wintertime, rationality, math, science. Yes, if you want to push ourselves beyond our biology with uh, uh, vaccines and antibiotics, of course. 
But man, listen, listen, listen. Don't take my mythology away from me. Do not try to take my romance. I like not knowing. I love I, like- I love not knowing um, uh, what's... not being able to explain certain things. Look, it's like this. If I take a piano and smash it into a thousand pieces and, and put it in a big sack, I I could say, this is a piano. Uh, but it's not a piano. It's not Not even a a piano piano. when it's sitting, uh, in, in a, in a corner. It's a piano only when somebody gets, sits down and learns how to touch it just so it's exactly like it was, I think it was Aldous Huxley who was Darwin's bulldog, you know, and, and, uh, they had this good natured debate at, uh, this this college that uh and and matthew arnold the american you know poet slash writer slash philosopher and and there was this great debate where aldous huxley said um uh you know we man started as protozoa and became this pointy eared long-tailed hominid and then we we became man and i i have that proof because it's called the origin of the species yes absolutely or uh, 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 there's no question that uh, evolution is true. Uh, I believe in evolution, but as Mar- Matthew Arnold said, maybe it is true. We started we started as prozo, we became monkeys. But there was something about that monkey that inspired it to Greek. There was something about that monkey yeah. that created the deep and dark writings of Aeschylus and Sophocles, uh, Shakespeare, the Parthenon, Beethoven, Mozart, Duke Ellington, uh, Louis Armstrong, and the list fucking goes on. Eric Weinstein, and it goes on and on. There was something about that 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 um, that created beauty for its own sake. You know, it's that beautiful that beautiful Schiller line: "Man is it." Man is truly is never more himself than when at play and play being defined as that thing which you do for its own sake. Um, don't take that shit away from me. I don't want to explain. But anything, I, bro. But look, it's worse than this. We are driving mysticism, narrative fiction out of science when the really amazing science, the stuff that is, you know, that, that is like going to church is increasingly put under pressure from the sort of skeptic uh, rationality community. And I skepticism and rationality are super important to both mm-hmm. of us. Yeah. But there's this other impulse, which is the imaginative impulse. And when you sick rationality and skepticism on the imaginative impulse at an early stage, you are killing the thing that built all of the rationality to begin with. Inspiration. Do you know what this is? Mm-mm. This is a Klein bottle. And the weird thing about it is, is that it only really exists in four dimensions. So this is a model of Klein bottle. Technically we would say it is immersed in R3 because this handle should not be going through this part of the bottle. Mm. And so there's no inside and no outside. It's like two Mobius bands sewn together. Mm. The only reason I learned about the Klein bottle was that I was given my, uh, my father's Xerox something in his office when I was growing up for the national lampoon. It was this, it was a fundraiser for terminal flatulence that looked really official, right? That you showed a toilet blown apart and, uh, you know, people suffer from terminal flatulence, but it is potentially curable. So at the end of this crazy, like foundation promotion, uh, fundraiser on the back page of this thing was a short story about a Klein bottle that was used as a contraceptive device. And the idea is that it would take the sperm and send it to the fourth dimension so no one would get pregnant. But this guy gets stuck in the Klein bottle. Now, this is a completely crazy, insane thing, but I had never heard of a Klein bottle. Yeah. And I remember reading this story and saying, I've got to find out what that is. 
Is that a real thing? Sure enough, you know, there was an entire topological theory of non-orientable manifolds. And the only way that I got to it was from a humor magazine. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, what about the idea that um, you're a mathematician, so I heard... Uh, um, there's a, there's a great course called the great ideas of philosophy. Um, it's, uh, it's in the, from the teaching company. And, um, I just quoted a little bit of, uh, David Robinson, uh, or Dan Robinson, who has, uh, written more about philosophy than anybody in the past 30 years. But, um, and, and he said something interesting. He was talking about how, you know, a theoretical mathematician spends their whole life you know, they had a dream about some this possibility, this right. mathematical possibility, and they spend their whole life coming up with this equation that they solve, and it bears no real relevance to the material world. But then they die, and okay, and thanks a lot, and we have this theorem that I guess you came up with. It was probably 300 pages long or something like that. And then about 100 years later or 20 years later, whenever, it it's used to put a rover on Mars or something, and it does bear direct relevance to the material world. So, you know, uh, again, it's, a, it's a, what we talked about before. It was like there are certain mythologies. You, you can disprove that all men are created equal with biology and math. You can actually disprove it very easily. You can take LeBron James and send us through a whole send a bunch of tests. But there's a deeper truth to it. When we collectively, when we collectively embrace this mythology, this myth right. um, that we are all created equal— it provides a better fucking world. It provides a better country, more food on the table, more equality, more diverse, more interesting culture, and ultimately a stronger culture because we're more creative. So that's a truth. So, so even though I can disprove it mathematically or bi biologically, for whatever reason, it's it, a different it kind bears, of truth. It bears sweeter fruit. So what of that? What of that crazy idea? Thank you, Yuval Harari, by the way, for bringing that to my attention. All right, with did you sapiens. did you see the first or did you hear the first uh, terrible interaction between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris? Sure did. Where sure did. Okay, where fighting, and that's what that was. I was like, Sam, you know, the, 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 yeah. You backed Sam. In, you backed Jordan in that. I I thought they both got mired down, and I liked them both very yeah. much. But I do think that Sam kept putting this flag there and couldn't move on. Well, Sam, I, I understood what Jordan was saying, though. So and, let's just recapitulate yeah. for the for the folks at home. Yeah. So my recollection, correct me if, yeah. if this isn't yours, is that Sam was trying to say that. Um, truth was very important. And Jordan was trying to say, if something doesn't contribute to human fitness, then in some sense, it wasn't true. A uh, little, bit, little bit different. So, right. so I think what's, what, what Jordan was saying was there are truths that would, that, that there are say scientific truths that if, if followed through with might would, be self-extinguished. Yes. We would, we would extinguish the world. Right. And that's not a, that's, that's, so we, that, that's not a truth that, that, so, so he was trying to marry truth with fitness. Uh, is it fitness or with, 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 um, well, the, if, if, with if, a, if I guess positivity, uh, something, uh, so yeah, the, the, I don't want to be unfair to Jordan. No, I don't want to be unfair to either one smart. of them, but what I was looking to get was your actual insight in something that I've struggled with on Sam's show. I said, I can reduce most of what I care about or perhaps all of it to four different values that compete with each other. And I said, it's truth, meaning fitness and grace. So there, there mm -hmm. are things that are true mm -hmm. that rob my life of meaning. And so I have to trade off between them. Mm -hmm. There are things that are true that might be less fit. Like you discover some way of blowing the world up. That's very cheap. And any high school student could do it. Mm -hmm. That would decrease human fitness. 
Um, and then there are things that are true that are not graceful, that are not beautiful, that that I wish were not true. And well, you know, you know, Nietzsche talked about this. Nietzsche talked about the idea of plural truths. Okay. I mean, when a, when a chemist looks at a painting, when you look at a beautiful painting, like the Sistine Chapel or something, it brings you to your knees. Right. A chemist could also say, well, what you see, what you think is blue is actually not blue. Your eyes are, are that's a trick that your eye is playing. And there'd, there'd be truth to that as well, which is you're well, not like, actually- Well, take the, take the David with its famous distortions of form. Mm -hmm. Michelangelo's David only works because it is in fact not truly a human form. It's a distorted form that is really reprocessed to be perfect right that's right okay. uh, another another way to look at it let's just take dogs for example yeah it's true that dogs are scavengers pack animals and hunters and it's also true that they've probably evolved to manipulate you with their little wags and their ears down Infant and, schema and, and, and so eyes. they're scheming you yeah. they're fucking manipulating you right. right okay great it's also true that dogs are awesome yeah. It's also true that I kiss them and I love the fuck yeah. out of them. And then when they die, I cry so hard I can't okay, take Okay, but it's not the same. That's true too. But, so there but, are, there's room for all these. Well, see, but I don't, I don't like this. I love the idea that there are things that actually I'm willing to sacrifice truth for. So you're saying it one way. Jordan's saying it one way. Sam's saying it one way. Yeah. What I I'm trying to. I thought that they could have let go of that. Because they would have got, they got mired down. They, they did. And then they had, a, they, they, you know, I remember Sam's agonizing. Should I do a redo? Yeah. What I get out of it, and, and this is un, an uncomfortable place to be, but it's interesting because it's uncomfortable to your point about what to mine in order to get to comedy. So I'm, maybe I'm just trying to get to a podcast is why did you imagine that truth was going to be a great guide to everything else? In other words, why would you mm. imagine that truth wouldn't be something that you might have to give up a little bit to get a better outcome? I don't believe that the Supreme Court is the nine wisest druids just because they wear black robes. But on the other hand, maybe I get a really better outcome if I learn how to suspend disbelief when I go to the Supreme Court, which I've attended once, just the way when I go to a movie, yeah. you know, transport me, take me away, make me believe that this is in fact true. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's true. I mean, that's, that's very true. There's there, again, it goes back to these plural truths. It depends on where you're standing and the question you're asking. Maybe, you know, there are all these sort of different variations on it, but sometimes something can be true, very true for you right then and there. It may, it may make no sense, but Ooh, I'm just having a great time yeah. or fuck. I love you. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you get, then you, then you have time to think about it. I was like, I was going to buy that car i asked that person to marry me but I, I, well, I really felt it in the moment i mean maybe that's just my biology talking but um uh yeah i i think there are different levels there there are truths with a capital t and then there's smaller truths maybe there are illusions but i like the illusion well i mean i think that one of the things that you can point to just the way the way you talked about why do people get carried away and end up in vegas marrying each other mm. is that in some sense maybe our biology knows that we can't trust our rational mind and that if we don't feel swept away that one of the reasons that these impulses are so hard to explain is is that biology has designed this drive to reproduce to be almost suicidal that you're willing to sacrifice you know if you think about it in terms of bi biology you have soma which doesn't reproduce and you have germ lines like your, what's between your legs that has a hope of immortality and you have to make sure that the soma is overwhelmed by the need to perpetuate the germ. And so in fact, we're born to be self-destructive and irrational in our somatic selves because it is our line 
that in some sense has to live forever. Yeah, you're a series of sensations, you know, and you chase some sensations and run away from the others a lot of times. Um, I think that that's where um, meditation and, uh, and certainly something that Sam Harris is. I do because of that book that I've always been fascinated with. I read a lot of, when I was a young man, I read everything about Zen and, you know, I was very into, I was a martial arts guy and I read a lot about, you know, the Japanese tradition of Zen and Zen and the art of archery and motorcycle maintenance right, and sure. all that stuff. And, and I even was, went through my period. It was like, the Greeks know nothing. And, you know, <laughs> I'm going to meditate, eh? you know, and all that stuff. But, um, but Sam Harris's book, spirituality without religion, I really, really liked because, and I really like his app. I'm not a practice, but I do it every day and I've been doing it for almost a year now. Sam, I, if you're out there, you're welcome. Yeah. 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 He's, 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 you know. But you guys haven't hung out. I, I've never met him. I, I, well, let's 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 rectify that because I think you guys would be I fast friends. I think he's great. And I, you know, to be honest, I would love to potentially explore with you some of the issues about how to bring truly high level math, physics, biology to a wider audience. I haven't really figured out exactly. I don't think you will, Eric. I think that you. Well, you know, they say that Einstein was really good, and and I, it's actually, I take that back. Einstein, they say, was really good at explaining the theory of relativity and gravity and things to a to a kindergartner. He could use diagrams, and I think if anybody is qualified to do that, it's you because you're you you just are a romantic dude. No, I'm just being, but I'm, I'm the kidding. Emotion. But, but, Look, but I mean, but but yeah, yeah. And, there's and, such an emotional core to this stuff, Brian. I know there is, and 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 you know when you were talking on. Logan about um, how you like leaving this world and you like you're in a world of ideas. I, I just, I haven't stopped thinking about it. I have not oh. stopped thinking about what you said. And, and, um, and, and so you are eminently qualified to simplify these ideas and turn them into something beautiful. If that's true. And I don't know that it is. Maybe it's, it's, look, if, it's a challenge. I know it's a challenge, but, but if it's true, it has to do with a very weird thing, I think, which is that symbols were not really available to me as a language because of my learning issues. They sort of, they, they play around and they jump here and there and I can't really read equations just the way I can't read music. Mm. And so for me, what happened was I had to find some other route up the mountain because the symbolic route was blocked off to me. You got to make it relevant. So, so why I always say to, to people who are not who haven't gone down the education road. I always say, I, I use these little things to young men. I know how to talk to them. I go, education's good. You know why? And they say, why? I go, because it teaches you the difference between a good idea and a bad idea. And mm -hmm. they, oh, I fucking, I like that. You know? yeah. And then I say, you should study some math. What the fuck math? And he goes, no, 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 listen, study some geometry, some yeah. algebra. Why, why? You know, well, because it teaches you how to think. And they go, well, what does that mean? I go, teaches you how to formulate an argument, teaches you how to debate and beat somebody, crush somebody. <laughs> and that's how my father did it to me. He goes, it gives you ammo. It'll teach you not to be a fuzzy thinker. Okay. And, he, and he masculine, he created a masculine energy around math. Guess who got an A in math? This guy. And I wasn't, and I was always thought I didn't have a math brain. But as soon as he did that, I was like, I got to fight the communists. I got to have a brain that's, I got to have a rational mind. And I got to learn how to, how to, you know, formulate an argument to beat that guy in the argument. I never, I didn't understand that. Yeah, I didn't. I hadn't read Jonathan Haidt yet. <laughs> well, it's very interesting. I don't know if you've ever read Einstein's. I guess it's a. It's not a eulogy. It's his um, celebration of Planck for his 60th birthday. No. So he. Um, well, just you seem to have read everything. Of course, I have. Max Planck. Yeah. No. 
Uh, At least I know Max's first name, <laughs> Planck's first name. So ah oh, yes, of course, Planck. Yeah, uh, Planck. It's pronounced Planck. <laughs> so he, um, Einstein said, "Look in the in the mansion of science, uh, you find three groups of people." He says, "The first is the craftsmen, and the craftsmen are largely there uh, because they enjoy the beauty of the construction and the purity of it." He says, then you find the, the competitors and they're there because science makes for a great game with which to beat uh, each other and contest. Then he says, there's a third group, which is the smallest of the three. And he said, that group is the searchers and they don't do most of the work. He says, the only thing about the searchers is that the mansion wouldn't be there if not for them. <laughs> and it's just this, it's, a, oh, it's like a gambit. God gives you, damn it. But like these guys. But this is all that matters to me. Like when I hear that, when you just use that metaphor. That's, but this is. Oh, thing. fuck. How can you not be a searcher? The problem is that I'll never be happy because I'm not, I'm not enough of a searcher. This, it's like the great jazz musicians. You ever, I think it was Albert Murray who, who spoke about the difference in, and in, in, in you hear this from. Yeah, but that was a dog whistle that you just pulled. Like the fact that you brought up Louis Armstrong. Yeah. Louis Armstrong is captured in our public imagination as a novelty singer, as opposed to the greatest genius that jazz ever produced. Who, Swing. Like he, he invented mo real modern jazz mo almost single-handedly. He could get, but the, all, again, the great, the great ones like this, like Charlie Parker and like, they Parker could be swing. number two, they, maybe. They would, they would, they, they knew their notes. There was the song and then they would go off. They would, they would improv over, improv over here thematically and come back to the theme. They'd find their way back. I mean, that's the whole point of stand-up, the whole point of any kind of self-expression, living in that danger zone, inspiration, doing something you didn't think you could do. Oh, you know, that, with that great thing in The Karate Kid, I remember when he, he breaks all the bottles, ah, 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 and he cuts all, and they go, how'd you do that? He goes, I don't know. It's the first time I've ever tried it. <laughs> Holy fuck. Ah! We all went, yay. You know, I mean, we all want to live in that danger zone. I mean, you know, but gee, be a good boy, play your horn, put it back and go home. Don't be crazy. You might not find your way back. Um, you know, but it, it, it's, this is what this podcast, hopefully, you know, it's, well, it's, this this is what, it's so, so fun to talk this way. So, a, well, the thing is, um, I want to make sure that you can escape this this episode so I don't go on forever, but I would love to have you back. And the thing that would be most meaningful to me uh, would be to find some way for you, for uh, you and me to um, explore some relatively difficult scientific ideas together oh, great. Um, to see whether or not we could make great audio and video out of, out of it. Because the, the thing that will be most meaningful for me is if some of the really gorgeous stuff, and you know, we both are talking about the the craft and the emotion. And the thing is, is that if this doesn't end up producing some amount of transcendence, and let's be honest, most of these episodes that I'm going to do are not going to get to the level of transcendence that I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. But if we can do something to push out the best stuff that people don't know is there, the symphonies that are sitting there, and I always make this analogy, as sheet music that is never performed. Like that's how I view academic papers. So many of these things are, are symphonic and they, there's no public performance that allows you to say, oh, that's what those people were dealing with? Mm. Oh my God, is that really part of our world? Is that really known and settled? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I would be very moved because I think you've got a mind like almost nobody I've ever met in terms of uh, range, conversational ability, and the ability to also just emotionally and analytically 
touch a subject simultaneously without one displacing the other. It'd be well, great. geez, coming from Eric Weinstein, that's a huge compliment. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I don't know, but yeah, I'd love to. I, I, I would enjoy it, and especially trying to come up with, as you were talking about, coming up with a, a complicated, we'll end with this, but coming up with a complicated mathematical, you know, or, or, you know dis- discussing a, or trying to discover or talk about, you know, a complicated scientific uh, idea. I was thinking about when Socrates was trying to prove the the existence of the soul and mm-hmm. the notion that we are all immortal and have been here forever. He took the two slave boys and asked them a complicated mathematical question. And one kid, he asked a series of questions and couldn't get the answer. And another kid, they were both 11 or something, and asked him the questions and and got the answer after, led him to the answer through a series of questions. And he said, I think it was to Minos, the great mathematic, mathematician in, in, you know, in Athens. He said, now, do you see that this boy's soul not been here long enough so he didn't have the answer in his soul but this boy had the answer and i just had to ask it out of him therefore his soul has been around longer i was like Gee. so the point is we're going to see if i'm an old soul or a young soul and my guess is i'm going to be a young soul. well my guess is, is that you're, you are a a superposition of all so thank you my friend um what a great time guys you've been through the portal with uh, our friend brian callen Look for his special Complicated Apes. And if you happen to be in the Los Angeles area or any city Brian is visiting, his comedy show is astounding. I think you will really enjoy it. Uh, Brian, thanks for coming on the show. What a blast. What a blast.